listening to the Wheel of Time TV podcast with Jay and Colin. Welcome to Randland, everyone. We are back at the Black Tower. This is your Mahal Colin, joined by uh, the Amarillo Jay. And uh, we are here to talk about uh, Wheel of Time, obviously. Season 1, Episode 5, Blood Calls Blood. This is a very big episode, and there's a lot to discuss. Um, so just a reminder that the first part of this episode is a spoiler-free breakdown and discussion. Um, the second half of the of the episode of this podcast will we'll be joined by Zoe, um, also Mentir on Twitter. Um, it's going to be chock full of spoilers. So we'll let you know. Don't worry right now. We're good, spoiler-free, but uh, we'll let you know when uh, the spoilers are going to kick in. So before we jump into uh, the discussion of the breakdown of the episode... Um, we're well over the hump of the narrative here. Um, we're well over the hump of the the uh, the season, rather, and well into the narrative. Um, how do you feel about this episode, Jane? You know, uh, I have mixed feelings about it. Overall, like the episode itself, I was really excited by and happy with. Um, but in terms of like the bigger picture arc, um, I feel like it's fast. And this is like the first time I really felt like there could have been an episode in between to take us a little bit on the journey because it seems like we just like reached this milestone <laughs> and it's been like non-stop like just checking boxes kind of mm-hmm. yeah interesting that, interesting okay yeah no go ahead go ahead no i was gonna say that said like it continues to diverge from the books in like really refreshing and exciting ways and i feel like it's starting to you know early criticism said it let it leans into like fantasy tropes and i feel like i'm seeing things that i've never seen before in terms of like the rituals and uh things like that so it's really exciting that's true that's a really good point um I also am very excited about kind of the ways in which we're seeing new information or new new scenes and new things from this world. Um, new in terms of outside of the books, but also new in terms of what we see and have come to expect from this genre and other kind of properties that we've seen like this. Um, so you posed a question for me uh, last week about whether or not I had any concerns or expectations going into this episode. And I'm wondering if, if you had any concerns or uh, expectations going into the episode five. I think I think I did. Um, I think my concern really was <laughs> what I said, which is like they're just going to reach Tarvalon so quickly. I was like, how are they going to do that? And, like jump forward in the story, um, and we see that with like the one month later opening. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, like in terms of the story being like contained within the episode, I think they delivered, you know, a pretty great way. <laughs> right. Um. Yeah, I, I had, I think I had mentioned to you that I did have a concern, and my fear was that episode four was so good that I was like, "How oh, are they yeah. gonna? <laughs> how are they gonna top that?" Um, <laughs> so that was my fear, and um, and you know, like I, I think that they, instead of like, I don't know, I, I feel like they didn't necessarily top it, but they kind of just took a different tack, which mm-hmm. I'm okay with. Um, yeah. The episodes are very, very different, so it's hard to really compare them. Um, 
but I don't think this episode was disappointing in the least. No. And you know what? My non-book fan friends all texted me and, you know, because four was the episode that like hooked them into the show. And mm-hmm. so I was nervous a little bit for this episode to see like, are they going to fall off? Are they going to say, oh, it was like a one hit wonder <laughs> and like the mm-hmm. show sucks. And they were like, episode five delivered. Like, I'm totally on board. So that was oh, great. Like, really cool to hear. Even the Virgos. that's you know what that's funny i have a virgo friend too who listens to this podcast so shout out (laughs) shout out but he too was like you know this may be my this may be my favorite episode um he's he's reading he's reading the books in the process of reading the books he said that Mm -hmm. this one maybe was his favorite um so we can get into that stuff um right now actually so um (laughs) so uh so yeah so let's let's kind of dive in um this episode um uh, as we've seen, all of them start with a cold open, and this one was uh, an especially cold open. Um, <laughs> we have a snow-covered mountain forest. Um, we get this shot, and we see um, warders uh, respectfully laying bodies into these shallow graves. They're kind of covered with these white shrouds, and um, one of the bodies that we see laid into one of the graves is is the King of Gelden, who who was killed in the the battle in the last episode, the previous episode, and he's laid in he's laid into this grave by by Lon. My land, and it's it's understood that this is um, a funeral rite. It's a funeral service for not just um, the fallen on the Aes Sedai side, but all of the fallen from that that particular battle, um, which is interesting. Um, so we see um, a procession of Aes Sedai walking towards this kind of gravesite. Um, Stepan is at the head of it, and he's holding um, Karina Sedai's corpse, and he kneels and lays her in the ground. And we see the other orders are arranged around the scene, kind of respectively at their ease. Nynaeve is seen kind of off to the side and kind of contemplation. And we get this moment of her kind of lightly tugging on her braid for the first time, um, which is an, a, a very direct nod to the books. And I think it was well implemented. Um, Stepan then, uh, as he's laid uh, Corinna's body into the ground, he removes her great serpent ring um, from her finger and he strings it um, through a cord that he has around his neck. And he, he goes to cover her body with the shroud, and he hesitates. And uh, Lan steps in and provides this moment of reassurance by grasping, grasping him on the shoulder. And Moraine moves in, and she places a candle atop of uh, the body after it's covered. And she delivers a line that is actually from the books, and she says, May the last, of the, last embrace of the mother welcome you home, which is, um, which is a line that Shinarans uh, deliver to uh to their dead um during funeral rites um then we see a quick shot of of Leandrin kind of subtly nodding um in accord and land and moraine share this very significant kind of look um when this happens and it and it reveals a bit of vulnerability about them and between them uh in this moment um and then after that happens, the camera kind of pulls out and up, and we see this very large um, aerial view of the entire gravesite, and it shows pretty significant losses, um, around 30 to 35 bodies, um, very carefully arranged in a two concentric circles um, uh, in the in the snow-covered ground. Um, what did you think of the scene? I thought it was... I thought it was awesome. And my first thought was, oh, you know, Rafe talking about going, I forget where they went, like Bali or into the rainforest or something <laughs> about rituals. And we joked about them, like, you know, definitely doing some shrooms or something. And I was like, oh, this is finally paying off. Um, and it was written by Celine Song, too. Yes. And Rafe did say, like, she was really passionate about, like, researching these rituals and thinking through all the details and so it was really nice to see this and like 
even just minor things i noticed that when they bury people in in this show like they don't have shoes on you know, but which is not something like you really think about, but like our funerals, people have shoes on. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a really beautiful shot. I know, um, in the, in the extras, the actors talked about how it happened to be snowing that day and mm-hmm. the cold really added to the emotion and let them like be immersed in the scene. Um, and I do think all those subtleties, especially the glance shared between Lan and Moraine, uh, is very charged. Um, so I thought it was yeah. like, beautifully done. It's also the first episode directed by Sally Richardson. Um, mm-hmm. So I think she did like a really great job handling the nuance of those moments. There's a lot of scenes in this that don't have dialogue that are all yeah. performance, um, which is pretty cool. I agree. I thought that um, I thought the scene was stunning. Um, I thought that it does a great job of kind of setting up the tone and expectations of the episode. Um, and I thought that uh, I had like kind of going into it. I knew that it was both written by Celine Song and directed by Sally. And and I kind of expected like specifically from Celine, like I expected more kind of um, emotionally uh, kind of uh, derived writing, if that makes sense. Like I was looking for her to kind of give us um, those kind of uh, mm-hmm. more kind of deeper emotional moments between the characters. And, and I think she definitely delivered for this episode. Yeah. It's interesting that this episode delivered for fans in the same way that like the action packed one did, but it's just packed with emotion. You know, there's right. not really any, <laughs> there's nothing crazy happening in this episode. No, it's true. It's- I think, no, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I just meant like, except internally and emotionally. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there was a lot of kind of internal character development for us, like understanding like what these characters are about and kind of like um, certain characters specifically, but kind of like what their motivations are and what these relationships are, you know. Um, and I think it, it, it delivers on that for sure. It was very successful in that way. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so as the show opens, um, the first thing we see is that it is now one month later. It's one month after this funeral service, after the battle, after everything we saw in, in episode four. Um, and, uh, and I have to admit, like, that was actually a concern I had that they very easily and quickly, <laughs> me without any foresight, they kind of like easily cleared that up. Did no, you feel like I that was too fucking, fast? I hate, I yelled at the TV screen when that, oh, like, wow. I yelled at it. I, and then, yeah. What really pissed me off is that it was completely unnecessary and redundant because we, one, we get the changing of the seasons, you know, you see it, you see that as like a a marker, an indicator. Matt Mm. says we've been on the road for a month, so you have it, you have the Mm. exposition delivered. And Mm -hmm. then with the Tinker plotline, you see like Perrin's hair has grown out and like there's all these indicators to show the passage of time. So just show Mm -hmm. us, don't tell us. I just thought it was tacky and like treating us like we're dumb. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. That's very fair. I, I, when I saw it, I was like immediately relieved because I had anxiety about that, about like, how are they going to deal with like getting them, like oh. making this, like getting them to oh, the tower, you know? Yeah. Like, and then we crossed hundreds of miles in a day, like right, right. season exactly. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was a fear I had. And obviously we had <laughs> different thoughts about the way they handled it. Um, but anyhow, uh, so the Aes Sedai, uh, party arrives near Tarvalon. Um, Landrin's kind of at the head of this procession. Um, Stepan is showing, is shown riding his horse, but also leading a riderless horse. Um, obviously, Karenasa dies. Um, we see Loghain kind of, 
he's he's shackled and uh, he has like a rope around his neck and he's kind of being led and he looks completely dazed and out of it. Um, and mm-hmm. Moraine and Lan have another brief moment about returning home. Um, Moraine, Moraine makes a case that, um, you know, their travel life is perhaps more home than Tarvalon because they're never there. Um, and uh, and then she makes a comment about uh, Nynaeve eating with the warders each night on their journey and Lan kind of passes it off um, mm-hmm. about Nynaeve being, being worried about Steppen. So there's a little kind of like a little jab there. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we see it later in the episode a bit too, like Moraine, maybe jealous isn't the word, but feeling vulnerable and mm-hmm. worried about the attention and this sort of relationship that is, or connection that's forming between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's uh, Rosamund Pike just really delivers in this episode. Like everything she does is so subtle, and yeah. she has that eyes to eye face where she can con- just convey so much in a look. So, yeah, I think she's like keeping an eye <laughs> on what whatever's happening around the water fire. No, I think you're right, and I, I had that thought too when I'm watching. Like, it really sometimes feels like, and it, it this I'm going to say this, but it, it doesn't. I don't say it to diminish any other performances, but I just say it to elevate hers. Like, I really feel like she's leading the cast, um, and it, it really shows at, at certain key moments. Um, she's really yeah. a stellar performer. Um, so there's another significant look that passes between Lana Moraine as they kind of comment on uh, Stepan, who looks so incredibly forlorn in his in his saddle as they're riding towards the city. And um, they kind of comment about the idea of a warder outliving his Aes Sedai. And there's a kind of another kind of, yeah, like I said, significant kind of moment passes between them um, before they, they get into the tower itself. Did, did you notice that Moraine says, you know, step, she replies to Lan and says, you know, Stepin will deliver her ring to the tower. She mm-hmm. doesn't say like, Stepin will be fine. I feel like Moraine is maybe a little more realistic and doesn't actually think that Stepin is going to survive, this, survive this. And I think yeah. Lan is more hopeful you know and i i bet that brings him a little bit closer to nanave also because Mm -hmm. he says like oh she's just around the fire because she's worried about step in and he's also worried about step in um right i think moraine is less concerned she's got like i mean she she has empathy but she's also got bigger fish to fry (laughs) right yeah yeah yeah. no i think you're right i didn't actually notice that but now that you mention it that makes sense um and i wouldn't be surprised if that were that were something that was happening beneath the surface there um, so the next thing that we get is I'm kind of going to stick with this, um, this kind of arc, this Moraine and Lan and Nynaeve kind of arc for a bit. Um, the next thing we get with them is they're in the tower and they're, uh, they're kind of bringing Nynaeve to the warders quarters. And did you, did you want to talk about the scene at all? Did you want to? You can, you can talk about it. Okay. So, um, you know, they kind of Nynaeve, uh, I'm sorry. Moraine and Lan bring Nynaeve to um, the warders' quarters and they take her to a room and they kind of explain that it's the safest place in the tower away from other Aes Sedai um, who are, now that they know that she exists and that she can channel, they're going to be trying to co-opt Nynaeve for their own designs. Um, and Moraine kind of like emphasizes the like the autonomy, the determination and like political machinations of all the individual Aes Sedai within the tower and that Nynaeve needs to kind of gird her loins, so to speak, um, for kind of dealing with that um, because she's now there. Um, sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, I was just, I do love the scene between Moraine and Nineveh, and it's, you know, without any spoilers, it is just so different uh, from the books to see this, mm-hmm. like, to see Moraine having empathy and, like, reassuring Nineveh, because I think in the books, she's not someone that offers reassurance. No, you're um, absolutely right. So it was it was really wonderful to see this exchange. Yeah, it's cool. Like, I think Moraine, like, she shows this these moments of, like, Rosamund Pike brings these moments of vulnerability to Moraine that we don't get in the books. Um, and I think that she's giving us a window into this character who is often so opaque in the books. Um, and she's, she's, she's kind of making it a little more transparent, which is, which is really nice to see. Um, so there's this moment um, when she's talking to Tanineva about kind of the politics in the tower. And she, uh, Nynaeve kind of pushes back and says, well, maybe they should be afraid of me, you know. <laughs> And Land's like, okay, like this is, yeah. I'm gonna go. <laughs> so Land like excuses himself, and then uh, Moraine and Inave have this this moment together. It's all right to be afraid. You reached out and you touched the source. You saw how small you are in comparison to it, and how great you are in comparison to those you've always loved. And now you're wondering, how do you fit into the world? Can you ever go back to being who you were? I know, because I felt it too the first time. And the answer is no. You'll never be the same. But it's time that you saw that for the gift it is. It's a really nice moment because, you know, Moraine kind of like, just levels with her and says, you know, like, it's all right to be afraid. I know how you're feeling. You've just touched the one power for, mm-hmm. for the first time. And um, and that's scary. And you your life probably feels up in the air right now. And, and I know what that's like. And that's okay. But this is also something that you should see as a gift and not as, as uh, an obstacle um, to who you are. It is who you are, you know, and you should embrace it is basically what she's saying. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, it's hard to picture Nanave as a novice. <laughs> like yeah how do you go from like that to being a novice i'm sure absolutely she's not gonna be happy about this suggestion yeah mm-hmm. um so moraine explains that you know she also felt the same way when she was in nanave's position and nanave kind of listens and and before um moraine departs she she makes sure to explicitly say to nanave that she would bring she would bring her friends to them or bring her to them to their friends once once she locates them, which I thought was a nice moment. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant, I guess, by reassurance. Uh, yeah. And because Nanave doesn't have a, as such as much solid ground to not trust Moraine at this point, you know, and mm-hmm. the more involved she is with the tower, she needs to trust somebody. Um, mm-hmm. But she's not at that point yet. She's definitely rebelling and being like, two rivers folk can take care of themselves. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's got a lot. She's thinking about a lot. There's a lot to deal mm-hmm. with. She's missing her friends. She hasn't seen. She doesn't know if they're okay. She's just channeled like immense amounts of the power. And she's like wondering about uh, questioning herself, but also yeah. dealing with these strangers that she has, you know what I mean? But also new feelings about this person who's connected to this person she kind of hates, kind of it doesn't know how to feel about. There's a lot going on there, you know? Yeah. The- the one thing that kept coming, like going through my mind, is that while this episode is so focused on the Aes Sedai water bond, if Nanave has any sort of uh, inclinations toward Lan, she's got to see this as like 
an impossibility because of his connection to Moraine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. that's like a lifelong bond till death do us part, literally. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wonder how she's feeling internally about that, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think that was something that was brought up in the last episode. Uh, at the, the kind of campfire scene when Stepan says, like, you know, the bond between an Isai and a warder is the strongest bond in existence. It's stronger than a husband and a wife. It's stronger than a mother and child, sister, brother. There's no b- stronger bond. So he explicitly tells her, like, not that he's saying it because he thinks she's in love with Land, but just kind of telling her. And that mm-hmm. that's an implication, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. So the, the next scene we get is, I love this scene. It was just the warders. And... It's just a wonderful scene. Um, Lan is entering a dressing chamber and we see Stepan. He's wearing all whites and kind of like a ceremonial outfit and he's standing in front of a mirror. And Ivan and Maxim are helping him uh, to properly situate the garment and, 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 and put, the, put the, uh, the outfit together. And they're also providing like some emotional support for him. Um, it's, it's clear that, or it becomes clear that Stepan is wearing funeral rites and uh, we glean that he's preparing for basically... Um, Kirina's funeral rites. So he he begins to impart a story about how he and Kirina met. Um, and through that story, we get a, a better understanding of the depth and the quality of their bo- of their specific bond, um, which I thought was really touching. And, and maybe maybe for some people, it was another one. Okay, here comes Wheel of Time with its story time again. But I thought it was a really, <laughs> a really nice moment. Um, what do you think about that? I didn't think it was like story time or anything like that. I was... Yeah. I even for non-book fans i'll just say this i think like throughout the books men are not treated the most fairly and Mm. to see the show show so much like fraternal emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. and just represent men and like in this way and have these scenes where they're like talking about their feelings and their past and like dealing with grief um i thought was really powerful and I think the the back Stepan's backstory, you know, is is helpful for us to understand and like show another aspect to the Aes Sedai too. Like, um, it's a it's a mutually beneficial relationship. It's not just like I choose you to be my warder, like you serve me now. You know, um, right. it is symbiotic that way. And I also just liked, uh, you know, Taylor Rafe's partner <laughs> showing up in this scene, like he's keeps having like little quips and funny moments and mm-hmm. um like his maxim and yvonne's relationship i think is like really cute and adds like some levity to the very heavy scene and episode absolutely which i i just enjoy like it is adding a lot just like their little moments it adds it adds so much and i think that like that we know the nature of the relationship also adds a lot um it's it's there's just so much that scene and I, I appreciate it so much. Um, it's really really good to see that kind of this like positive non toxic male fraternal relationship. Yeah. It's like it's like you know what I mean. It's like really really refreshing to see on television. It really so really is much yeah. And then but I do love when Stefan claps back at Lan and says yes uh, yeah <laughs> yes. <laughs> like let's see you like lose Moraine and like jump to another woman buddy. Yeah exactly. And Lan's like oh. F- fair <laughs> yeah totally um and even before that moment like there's the moment that step in after he um tells them the story of how how he and kirna bonded um he says you know like after that happened he had to then become worthy of of her 
Um, and I thought that was a really interesting moment. It made me think back to, again, that campfire scene, scene when Stepan tells Nynaeve that, you know, Aes Sedai means servants of all in the old tongue. And, and Nynaeve says, well, what does that make you? And Land interjects and he says, proud. And it, it kind of like connected those dots for me. And I thought that was a really, really well done. Um, mm-hmm. I liked that a lot. Totally. Um, yeah, that was good. I will say we spend a lot of time in Stepan's quarters in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I know we'll get to it, but in this scene is the first time we see like some of the fun props. Like we see the forsaken. Uh, mm-hmm. What what would you call those? Like figurines. Figure. <laughs> yeah, and we see. I mean, they're not like action figures. They're like, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, I know. His, his, uh, his forsaken yeah. Funko like yeah, with dolls. The, yeah, yeah, with the action action grip. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> But then we see, like, above his mantle, too, like, that block with all the different daggers in it and stuff. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What did... I mean, we didn't even talk about the reveal of (laughs) Tarvalon. Like, what do you think? Oh, my God. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. We haven't gotten there yet. Okay, okay. That didn't didn't actually happen. Yeah, we're in the tower. (laughs) So, um... (laughs) So, uh... So, yeah. So, after this kind of, like, um, really nice emotional fraternal, fraternal moment, um... Stepan kind of leaves the uh, leaves his room and he walks down down the aisle and there's this like gathering of the warders as they're kind of honoring this moment. Um, and I think it's stated before that like the death of an Aes Sedai is something that happens very very rarely. So this is not only only a somber moment, but it's also a very rare moment. Um, so it's interesting to me that they have these. They're actually rites and like there's specific things and, and rituals that they do for this moment um, that they're kind of enacting at this at this period. So Stepan kind of walks down the hall. He goes up to this kind of um, this open kind of like uh, lookout, like high up in the tower, and he there's a brazier there that's burning, and he places the ring within that kind of molten gold that circumscribes the brazier, and um, it's just a really nice, it's a really really nice scene. It's a beautiful shot. Um, I thought it kind of like punctuates the the emotional like the emotionally charged uh, atmosphere of of the scene, um, and it was really 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 well, really well done. I like that a lot. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that particular shot, but I really liked that one. I know you mentioned kind of like wanting to see more kind of sweeping, um, sweeping mm-hmm. shots and scenes that kind of invite us into the the expanse the expanse of this world. And I thought that was that was a very quick one, but I thought that did that. Yeah, no, totally. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was good. Um, so moving on a little bit, um, we then have like right after this happens, there's a short a very short silent scene in Moraine's chamber chamber that I, there's no dialogue in this scene and it's such a powerful scene. And we have uh, Moraine sitting in this chair. Do you want to describe this or should I, should I keep going? Um, yeah, you can take it. Okay. So Moraine's like seated in this chamber. It's very like well lit and she's kind of like in a contemplative, she seems to be in a contemplative moon. She's, she's alone in this chamber and then Lan enters and he kind of closes the door and he pauses at the door. And then he walks over to her and kneels beside her chair. And he her hand is kind of on the arms of the chair. And she he puts his hand on top of hers. And they make brief eye contact. And no again, no words are spoken. And but you get the sense that a billion words are being silently conveyed between the two of them um, as this moment occurs. Um, she then places her other hand, her wing, her ringed hand, on top of his, and and he con- he looks down at the ring and he contemplates it and he kind of like 
moves towards it and he, he with his other hand he kind of like caresses it or touches it and there's this really interesting and profound moment um that really punctuates the relationship between Warder and Aes Sedai, but also specifically between Moraine and Lan. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to bring levity to the scene, which is <laughs> remarkable, but it does recall the joke that Stepan made to, uh, to his Aes Sedai, where mm. he was like, can you imagine their dinners? And oh, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty much this, them <laughs> sitting in silence much. with just heaps yeah. of under, unspoken understanding. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't wrong. Um but no, I mean, what do you what do you think is the subtext that is happening here? Um, I think there's so much. I mean, I think that like, I think that Lan is is contemplating both the prospect of losing uh, Moraine, like what that would be like. He's confronted with this thing, <clears throat> but I think he's also contemplating like Nynaeve. You know, I think mm-hmm. he's contemplating like he does have a desire to like be with this, this new woman, you know, and, and, but he's tethered. He can't, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like he's, he's, he's already made a decision however many years ago um, to this particular life. And that life has no room for this new woman, Um, but he still wants it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I I think that's what's happening for him. I think Moraine is aware of all of that, (laughs) you know? Um, And I think she has compassion for it, but I think she also knows like, and I think that's what the kneeling kind of suggests, that she knows that, like, you're mine, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that's that's just what it is. But I think she, I don't think that she's so cold that she doesn't understand or have compassion for that. Mm-hmm. Totally. I think one thing that I hope they touch on later that I think is also happening is, I mean, you mentioned, obviously, he's contemplating what would happen if something happened to Moraine or, you know both of them because they're Mm -hmm. on this super dangerous mission you know we've seen them fight trollocs and fades already um but like we understand from episode one moraine's uh mission you know to find the dragon reborn but we don't know lan's backstory or like his motivation beyond like helping moraine uh serve his purpose so I'll be curious to kind of just learn more about Land's background, the way we learned mm-hmm. about Steppen's background. Um, so I hope at some point, like, fans get that from the show. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, yeah, that kind of, like, that's the first half of that kind of, like, Moraine, Aes Sedai, Nynaeve, and Lan um, arc. So let's kind of switch gears and jump over to Rand and Matt and what they've been up to. Um, so... They kind of, um, they kind, of, they also arrive just outside of Tarvalin, and um, they're kind of walking up to the city, and they're kind of in this this throng of kind of um, bedraggled people who are who are walking towards the city. And the first thing we kind of see is is Matt is looking very wretched. He's gaunt and looking kind of haunted and goth and um, hot. Matt got, <laughs> Matt got goth on the road. He's like a little eyeliner, and then he could start. It's a eyeliner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. And so, like, this child kind of bumps up, bumps into him as he's walking on, along the road, and he aggressively, like, snaps at the small child, um, who was just, like, playing and, like, kind of, like, playfully bumped into him. And Rand kind of sees this and is, it's kind of just punctuates and, like, immediately brings us back to the gravity of their particular situation and what happened in the last episode, um, that being um, their Madral fight and them kind of leaving Tom behind, uh, the Fade fight and them leaving Tom behind to, uh, to handle that. And and also the question of who killed those people, 
Um, mm-hmm. Was it the fader? Who was it? The fader was it? Matt, right? So, yeah. so it kind of immediately brings us back to that um, that moment in that question. I'm gonna say Matt's dagger was completely clean in that scene. I think if he slaughtered a bunch of people, I mean, he could have wiped it off, but I don't know. <laughs> That's true. It was clean, but he's he's also implicated. He's not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's also yeah. implicated. Um, so, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to note it. I was going to say, I don't know if you noticed, but in the scene where Lan and Moraine are walking to Tarvalon and in mm. the scene with Ran and Matt, we see these um, kind of like broken stones um, that are like about eight feet high and they have some yes. sort of glyphs. Um, yeah. So I'll be curious because it's also seen later in the Tinkers. So I'm just really yes. curious. They, they're obviously like planting this for some reason. Yeah, I saw those too. They they looked kind of like they. I assume they were kind of like um, marker stones for kind of like if you're going traveling along the road, saying like, okay, go this mm-hmm. direction for that, go this direction for that. But we will see. Maybe they will come back. Yeah, I mean, they weren't like in a language that I recognize, but I don't know. You know, that's true. But we, I don't think we've seen any written language in this world yet. True. So we don't we don't know what their letters look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's true. Um, so anyhow, they're kind of like walking in this procession and this this throng of people, and and Rand makes a comment. He says, "Look at that!" And then we look and we see this amazing shot of Dragon Mount and uh, Tarvalon uh, in front of it, and it's a beautiful fucking shot. What do you think it's about that? So nice! It is stunning. You're, it's really, you're right. Really that good. was my Vista payoff that I've been waiting yeah, for. That was that. I was like, mm-hmm. Jay, Jay's going to love that shot. That's the shot. Yeah. <laughs> it's the money shot. I love the city. And luckily, they didn't do like an aerial view like the map in the books that looks like a big vagina island. So <laughs> it was like pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, it was um, good. It was good. Yeah. I think like I, I'm curious too. I mean, obviously, there's visual effects and, you know, uh, a lot that went into like creating that scene but i do know they filmed in like beautiful landscapes also so like i'm sure some of it's like taken from that so i was like oh mm-hmm. nice to see it like pay off shooting in the wilderness <laughs> yeah totally and Rand make this makes a comment about like he feels like he's seen that mountain before um and they kind of like go up on this kind of like uh precipice and they're looking out over over the land and it's, it's just a really really beautiful mm-hmm. shot um and then the next one the next scene there oh god did you want to say something Oh, no, I was going to say, like, Matt doesn't seem to care that much. <laughs> right. He's, like, completely disinterested. He does not give a fuck about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the next scene, their next shot, they're, they're inside the city limits, and, and they're in the streets of, of Tarvalon. And, and I actually really like this, this scene, too. Like, they're kind of walking through the streets and uh, interacting with a few people. And I really appreciated, like, the very easy um, diversity within the streets. Because for me, like... It's such a deliberate and marked difference from any other fantasy property we've ever we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Specifically, Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings; those yeah. being the two largest. Um, they're always all white people. Just it's just a flat out fact. And like this one was very much not that, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, absolutely. Also, um, Rand says his first curse. <laughs> Rand does it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he says blood and ashes. That all. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, because like. It happens really fast, you know, the scene of them entering the city. So I would like I had to rewatch it to kind of like take in their reaction. It's like very mm-hmm. quick, you know, but yeah. Or, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, he does. I did, <laughs> he did say blood <laughs> ashes. Yeah, that was good. I did catch that. 
Um, so yeah, the boys enter the city. They're kind of roaming through the streets, and um, and we learn that they're looking for an inn that Tom mentioned to them um, when he was when he was with them, and that a, an old friend of Tom's runs the inn. So they're kind of searching for the inn, um, and when they get to this this shot where they find the inn, Rand kind of moves out of frame, and some people may have seen this, some people may not have, but right where Rand is standing when he moves out of frame, behind him in kind of a doorway in a shop, you can see Payton Fane lurking behind mm-hmm. them. Um, and I was like, fuck yes, thank you. Because yeah. where I was waiting for that. <laughs> He's lurking everywhere in this episode, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was good. Did you catch that the first time or did you have to go back? I did not catch it the first time. I was taking it all in with Rand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that was good. There's like, there's that. And then I think like, it kind of cuts to like, like the first shot we see looking at Rand and then Rand moves out of frame and we see Payton, uh, behind him, like where he's, where he was standing. And then it cuts to Rand entering, Rand and Matt entering the inn and we're kind of, the camera's kind of situated where Fane would be. And maybe we see like a little bit of his cloak and we hear that, that whistle again. Um, Mm -hmm. the kind of noise that he makes. Um, so yeah, so that was good. Um, so the boys end up getting a room and they make themselves comfortable. Um, we see kind of like how the dynamic has shifted. Matt's very somber and negative. Um, and Rand seems to be attempting to keep things kind of lighter and positive. Um, and he's also kind of showing concern and frustration over Matt's demeanor. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see Matt kind of struggling with this kind of concept of what happened in the last episode, like having p- potentially murdered these people, the Grinwells and, um, and he seems to be more concerned about the possibility of having murdered that young girl. Tell me again. That little girl on the farm. It wasn't you, Matt. It wasn't you. Tom and I both saw it. Tom's not here. Tom's dead. Now please believe me. It was the fate. You know you didn't kill that family. You would never hurt that little girl. Yeah, like, this is where... I I felt like I wish there was, like, more time given before we get to Tarvalon, because I, I honestly would have liked to see some of their struggle on the road. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they do a good job of writing it and, and making it clear everything that's, like, happening between them. But I would have liked to, like, have time to see the, those tensions form. Because I'm sure after a month, like, Rand must be beyond frustrated, you know? Oh, absolutely. And, and scared and, like, feeling a lot of emotions. But he does manage to keep his, like, morale up miraculously. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah, we kind of we kind of miss that, the building of those tensions. Um, and kind of like the, that burden on, on Rand, um, to keep them both alive, keep Matt moving, um, all of that. So keep him positive enough, positive enough to keep moving. Um, it's gotta be a lot for sure. You're right. Um, so, you know, after we get this kind of clip of, of Matt, uh, kind of talking about, um, that situation and talking about Tom and, and Rand tries to convince him that. You know that it wasn't him that did that. It was it was the fate that did it. Um, the next scene we get is is a really great scene, um, and it's Rand in the library of the inn, and um, we get our first kind of. I think this is the first and only new character we get for this episode, which I appreciate. Um, 
Oh my god, Colin. Of... I wanna know. Wanna... No, I wanna know your reaction. Like oh. <laughs> I know you're gonna put it on me, but I really wanna know what you think first. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, well how about this? You describe the scene and then I'll tell you what I thought. Okay, so Rand is in the library and uh all of a sudden some large man walks up to him and Rand draws his uh hair hair marked blade thinking i guess that it's like a trollic or some shadow spawn creature even though honestly he looks like the furthest thing from <laughs> shadow spawn creature um and we get loyal uh who i've always called loyal but apparently in this turn he gets loyal loyal um mm-hmm. rand looks stunned and is like very confused until loyal explains that he's not an ogre he's an ogier and from the steading whatever that may be and so rand puts his blade away starts conversing with this jovial ogier <laughs> um <laughs> and i mean we'd seen sneak peek so i feel like people knew what to expect like pretty much in terms of like his appearance um i was honestly surprised by his personality uh mm-hmm. like <laughs> i was like whoa loyal is cocksure <laughs> like that's what i wrote right. I was, like he's so confident and like uh sarcastic and sort of like a little bit like condescending to be honest and oh wow yeah and it was very different from the books where i feel like he's like nervous and more timid um and Mm -hmm. a little like maybe clumsier um so yeah i mean you can describe the rest of the scene but that's like our first intro intro to loyal um and yeah i okay wait i will say you know he thinks that rand is an aiel and Rand's like, I'm not an Aiel, I'm from the Two Rivers. And Loyal mm-hmm. says, oh, an Aiel from the Two Rivers who says he's not an Aiel man. Like, what an oddity. I love oddities. Um, yeah. So that's like the first time it's been called out. We did see the Aiel with the red hair back in uh, Breen Spring. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the first time it's like being connected to Rand in some way, which is definitely interesting. Right, right. Um, so yeah, so I... <laughs> I loved the scene, honestly. Like, look, I, we had seen images of of loyal loyal, I guess, before the episode aired, so I kind of knew what to expect. Um, and the first thing I have to say is that I was completely absorbed in the scene. I think the performance is absolutely stellar. Um, I I personally think that you know Ahmad is killing the performance with loyal. It's great, um, and I found myself just absorbed in the scene and I noticed myself unconsciously smiling while he was on the screen um, because I felt like he really captured the loyalness um, of that character, which was really nice. Um, And I admit that like, it wasn't necessarily the exact thing that we imagine maybe when we read the description in the book. Um, But I I think it's, it's very obvious that what's being conveyed is that this is another species that is neither human nor trollic. Right. Um, So I think that's very, very well conveyed. Um, and and I, I have actually I have no problems with it. Like, I think it's great. I think that like for me, what I thought about was um, I had a particular thought when we first entered Tarvalon. I had expectations because that's one thing. And I think we all have, as fans like maybe have expectations of particular moments or there are certain moments that really stick out in us. And we're itching to see those moments on screen. And seeing Tarvalon was one of those, I think, probably for a lot of people. But something specific for me was seeing Ogre Stone Masonry. Um, in Tarvalon. Yeah. yeah. I, mean? I was I wanted to see mm-hmm. like I wanted to see like shops that look like waves like blowing in the breeze. I wanted to see like, 
you know what I mean? Like buildings that were like, that looked like all sorts of crazy, fantastical things, you know? Um, and they didn't do that and that's okay. And I, and I had to kind of just like let that go. And mm-hmm. I feel like the, the appearance of loyal was another one of those kind of things where it's like, okay, this is, we're going to have to let certain things go, you know? Right. He's not as large as I imagined. Like he doesn't look as large as a trollic to me, you know, mm-hmm. like Rand mm-hmm. is very tall and he's like a mm-hmm. little bit taller than him. And you're right though. Like when I saw the, the wide shot of Tarvalin, I was looking for kind of like the bridges between buildings and like mm-hmm. a little bit more fantastical, but it's definitely more like grounded and real architecture. But they mm-hmm. went more like this intricate, like lattice style stonework everywhere, right. which we right. which we even see in like the inn that Rand and Matt are staying in. Um, yeah. And I thought exactly. that was like really nice. And it allows for like all this like light to shine in, which is cool. Um, yeah, but, I agree. yeah. But yeah, lo- Loyal is different than how I had pictured him, but I love I love the way they approached it because it allows him to like be physically there and not like CG or anything like, you know, um mm-hmm. and to play off the other performers, which I think is like nice, you know. And and I agree mm-hmm. the performance is like great. Um yeah. But yeah, he's definitely like way more confident than I imagined. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see more scenes with him. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to that for sure. Um, so they have this this moment, this conversation, um, and then they're interrupted by the sounds of the Aes Sedai returning to the city. Um, and this is kind of overlapping with the scene that we just the scenes that we just talked about. And they kind of go to the city, and they can see the or go to the window rather, and they can see the procession of Loghain um, being par- paraded through the streets. Um, Rand sees Matt kind of like roaming around in the streets, and and he leaves Loyal to go catch up with Matt, promising to meet up with him later. Um, so Rand then catches up with Matt, who's watching um, the procession from a window, and and at this point we see our I think our second glimpse of Fane. Um, who was just kind of like watching all of this um, from this alcove behind some bird cages, and then again behind a group of novices who are moving through the street. Um, so this pro- this procession winds through the streets, and and Stepan is seen again leading Kirna's horse. Um, the crowd notices that there's a backwards boot in the stirrup of of this empty horse, and they they kind of I think know what that means. Um, and again, like it's not very often that an Aes Sedai is is killed, so. Um, there seems to be like some, they seem to be taken aback. There's some gasping and whatnot. Um, Loghain is seen shackled and seated within a, the same cage. Um, and he, as he's being led to the streets, he notices these two boys, Matt and Rand, um, seated up in this window. And, and this is as people are like throwing food and, and jeering at him. And he appears to focus on Matt, who looks like absolute shit or, or hot, depending on what you think, this, think of <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> and um, Matt begins to like, I'm sorry, and uh, uh, Loghain begins to like laugh maniacally as he's looking at Matt, and there's this, there's this moment, this kind of cinematic moment where they're looking at each other, and Loghain's like laughing maniacally, mm-hmm. and kind of like his face is pressed up against against the bars, and Matt is kind of like absorbed in this moment, and then it breaks, and and it seems as though that whole thing was just in Matt's head, and Loghain never laughed and never looked at him. Um, did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I I mean. It's interesting. Do you think it definitely is in Matt's head? Because part of me wondered, like, I, I mean, I know Logan is, like, losing it. But there mm-hmm. was, like, something with the sound design. Definitely, like, yeah. the, the dagger was, or that, like, power was coming into play. Like, that corrupt that corruption around Matt. So, like, I don't right. know if it was 
coming from Matt's perspective or if Loghain somehow was like sensing something. I don't know. I thought like, whoa, uh, can Loghain see Tavirin maybe? Like, I don't know. Right. I'm not I'm not sure. I think they did a good job of kind of leaving that up to so many different variables that they've introduced at this point, but something happened there, you know? Um, and we don't know exactly what it was, but there was something that seemed to have transpired between Loghain and Matt in that moment. Um, I, For me, I felt like, oh, that was in Matt's head, but I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what part was in Matt's head and what part was real. Um, and so Rand is the one who kind of snaps Matt out of that moment. And, um, and we get this, this kind of moment between the two of them where Matt is actually tearful. He's got tears in his eyes and he, he forces Rand to promise him that as they're looking at Loghain, that, that uh, he won't let, Matt become like Loghain if it turns out that Matt can channel. Um, and Rand makes that promise, and then he asks Matt to make that same promise. That's what I could do. Alright. Alright. If it turns out it's one of us that you or me can channel. We won't let each other become like that. I'm serious. I don't give a shit about this prophecy nonsense. I to die, dragons, whatever. I won't be like that. You won't. You don't know that. Promise me. You do the same for me. You bet. I thought it was really deftly handled um, and shows, you know, Matt's state of mind right now. I don't think Matt has much hope. <laughs> and, you know, he says, like, I don't give a shit about the prophecy, you know. Um, and it's just nice to see, like, Rand is so fucking caring. <laughs> I think, I think Tegrade said he's like a ray of sunshine. <laughs> yeah. And he really is. Um, yeah. What, what about yeah. you? What'd you think? No, I think it's, it's a really s sweet moment. And, and for me, like, I was struck, the thing I was maybe most struck by with that exchange was Matt's reply. Um, because Rand says, you know, he promises. And then Rand says, you know you would do the same for me, right? And Matt says, you bet. And it's kind of like a throwaway, yeah. like, it's a throwaway. Like, it's like, it's really noncommittal and it's not the exact same words that Rand said, you know? And yeah. and Rand takes that in. And I think to your point, like, if we had seen maybe those scenes of them on the road for a month and like the trials that Rand had to deal with as a result of mm -hmm. Matt being ill, we would understand the impact even more. But I think Yosh did a great job in showing Rand absorbing that information. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really, really good. Yeah. Um, I wanted, I, if we're still talking about this scene, I just wanted to read a tweet because someone mm -hmm. asked us a question. So when we're seeing the procession go by, we get our, uh, I think the second glimpse of Pat on Fane mm -hmm. and he's like, you know, sitting in sort of like an alleyway or a threshold to a building and there's bird cages around. 
as like Loghain's cage goes by and someone said love the visual metal metaphor here in episode five of pat on fane being in a shot with a bunch of bird cages is he the bird is he luring others into his cage is tar valen one big cage for our main cast um and yeah i don't know um and and i was also thinking about it too because he's always like whistling and maybe mm-hmm. it's kind of like the, the bird oh yeah sound you know right 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 that was i saw that tweet too that was actually really good um yeah yeah i really like that yeah. um some good questions Thanks at Buffy Antiqua. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of where kind of where we leave off with with Matt and Rand. Um, so let's jump over to Pierre and Egwene. Um, so at the top of the episode, they are still traveling with the Tinkers. They've been with the Tinkers now for you guessed it a month, and um, they're seemingly having a great time. You know, um, Pierre has this kind of short exchange with Aram about the hypocrisy of letting their pets engage in carnage um, while they profess um, pacifism. And they kind of talk about like the way the leaf being a matter of acceptance of the violence inherent within us, as opposed to um, kind of like shunning all acts of violence. Um, And that's kind of, kind of who explains that, which I thought was an interesting kind of concept to introduce. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you have some thoughts about that? No, I, I mean, yeah. I thought it was actually, like, a nice way to learn more about the way of the leaf and not story, right. t- story time. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. It seems like a very natural exchange, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I like the familiarity between them. Like, we do get the sense of the passage of time, and Egwene mm-hmm. seems, like, really happy and sort of, like, recovered from their initial, you know, leave-taking from the two yeah. rivers. Um so it kind of gives you a false sense of security. <laughs> they're yeah. like, there's the White Tower. <laughs> yeah, they're like approaching the White Tower. Like Egwene's like bounding up to them and jumping on Pyrrhon. Like she's very like jovial, you know. And then they encounter a caravan or they encounter a caravan of white cloaks. Um, and the the tinkers are kind of facing off against these white cloaks on this this kind of forest road. And uh, and uh, Eamon Valda sees um sees Pierre and Egwene as he's looking through uh the group and he kind of points to them and he says bring them to me I want them and um Ela like says no she's like you can't have them you know they're mm-hmm. ours and there's there's this exchange and and it and it um comes to a head where where the tinkers kind of link arms and they form a human chain and the white cloaks first it's Valda who strikes Ela um and she she regains her composure and she doesn't she doesn't give up ground and then all the white cloaks get off of their horses and they just start they just start beating the tinkers yeah um um, which is really disturbing it is so disturbing and i knew like in when the first time i watched it i did think about your reaction um mainly to like uh, Maria Coden Doyle's like performance, you know, I was yeah. like, oh, Colin's gonna fucking love this. Like, she's blinking <laughs> arms and standing up. And yeah. man, like, I have to laugh, but I love the choice of the white cloaks having that like ridiculous fade haircut and mustaches. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's just so appropriate. Like, it's so disgusting that they mm-hmm. just start wailing on the fucking tinkers. Like, are you yeah. kidding me? Like, yeah. you, you walk in the light? Okay. But yeah, totally. at the same time, like, when she stood, when Ela stood up to them, I was like, yeah, they definitely think she's a dark friend. Like, just looking at them, you know. Like, yeah. I mean, they think everyone's a dark friend, but definitely, like. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was that was a disturbing 
uh, scene. Um, so in the in the chaos, Aram leads Egwene and Pyrrhon away from the group to help them escape, and but they're eventually apprehended by some white cloaks and horses. Um, and so the next time we get back to them, um, actually the ne- next time we get back to them, there's this again really disturbing montage, um, and it's of Egwene, and it's Egwene. She's being stripped. She's being cleansed um, by like a, a few like three white cloaks um, who are fully clothed, and. You know, the playback of this is it's slowed down and the audio is filtered down to like just kind of this surreal warped echoing sound um, on top of like Egwene's whimpering as they're kind of scrubbing her with these like really like brittle oh brushes. My God, they're like horse brushes. Like, it's yeah, insane. exactly. It's crazy. Um, it's a really kind of like brutal scene to watch. Um, they're kind of like roughly undoing her braid and combing out her hair and cleaning beneath her fingernails and basically just the idea is that they're trying to make her clean enough to be presented before mm-hmm. um, Eamon Valda, you know? Um, did you have any other thoughts about that particular moment? Yeah, I mean, just that Sally killed it. Like, the yeah. direction yeah. of the scene was so good. The sound yeah. was so powerful. And I, you know, I enjoyed seeing the discourse online criticizing Game of Thrones for using, like, sexual violence all the time mm-hmm. as, like, mm-hmm. this band-aid that's so unnecessary and i think this scene like shows that you can show trauma in someone like in a a violation that will you know impact this person's experience without Mm -hmm. that you know so like without that yeah and everyone was like thank god you didn't go that route and like it was it impacted everyone like everyone felt it very like viscerally Uh, yeah I also think that, like, no, I think that, like, I thought this thing was fucking, it was powerful as fuck. Yeah. And I think it's powerful as fuck because of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. Because I was sitting there thinking, like, fuck, they're going to do the thing. Don't do the thing. Please don't do the thing. And they didn't do the thing. And it was great. And, you know, and it has that resonance because we're so used to seeing that with that show where they just kind of, like, do the easy thing that's the toxic easy thing of, like, well, you know, let's... That's throwing some like Rape non-consensual bullshit. Exactly. <laughs> like, you know what it. I mean? Yeah. Exactly. And they didn't do that. The scene was very, very, it was very clinical and non-sexual. Um, and, but it still serves, it still shows like the trauma and kind of like um, the impact, the emotional and like mental impact of what's psychological impact, mm-hmm. what's going on there, you know? Yeah. And just the inhumanity of the white cloaks, like the way they grab her face, like one yeah. guy grabs her face. I was like, ugh, like. Yeah, all the little moments, even the trimming the nails, I think I, like, screamed. <laughs> I was like, oh, my Yeah, God. totally. All yeah. of it was just horrifying. It was just yeah. horrifying. Um, so after this happens, Egwene um, is kind of put into this kind of, like, basic white, like, shift or dress. Um, and she's, um, we see uh, her strapped to this kind of uh, chair in Eamon Valda's uh, tent. And uh, they tie her hands down. They kind of, like, um, restrain her legs. And Pyrrhon is then brought in. He's bound and he's gagged. And he's strapped to a wooden horse, kind of like leaned over a horse. And um, he's like tied to it. And we see Imanvalda like begin to eat his dinner. And, and like his ca- he's in his casual white cloak outfit. He's got his, his arms bared, um, which was also disturbing. Sun's <laughs> out, so guns out. Yes. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> to green text and I was like when yeah. he came in with no sleeves I was like what the fuck is happening like, <laughs> yes seriously it was weirdly disturbing I was like okay it's it's really kind of normal but it's also kind of like what is going on here yeah I love that torture um, makes him so hungry like he's such a foodie yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's I mean I, that's such an that's a good point because it I think that adds to his disturbing quality that like he's just like I can eat while doing this like mm-hmm. what that's and just he uses wild, the you know. Same knife too. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna ask, like, I thought it was interesting that, you know, they clinically <laughs> scrub down Egwene to make her presentable, but then they leave Perrin as is. Like, they don't clean mm-hmm. Perrin or change his clothes or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. Um, I, I, I can only assume that it has to do with, like, the filth of what they assume is, the, like, the one power, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, or what they assume is the filth of one power, mm-hmm. but, but yeah. Um, so... So yeah, so Pyrrhon is brought in, um, and then we get uh, a very, very interesting scene, scene I thought. Um, <clears throat> and Egwene begins to plead with with Valda um, and convince them of their innocence, that like they're just, you know, country bumpkins. Um, and Valda explains that he knows that she is, isn't an Aes Sedai because she hasn't attempted to channel yet. But he also explains that um, an Aes Sedai once told him that... Um, Hand gestures were superfluous to channeling. Sir, please. Call me Child Valder. Your authority is in the light, not me. Child Valder. We are not who you think. We're nothing. We're not. We are all someone important under the light. But you're right. You're not who I thought you were. And I said I would have tried to channel already. So I would have taken your hands already. You know, one of those witches once told me that you don't actually need your hands to channel. That the use of the hands of any motions or words is just a crutch. I can't channel. There. We've proved it then. Because I said I certainly cannot lie as much as they're able to twist the truth. I thought this was like a really critical discussion to see this particular thing being addressed. Um, and we kind of talked about this the last episode. Um, so I was, I was happy to see them kind of like addressing this thing. Um, and obviously it also leads into what happens later in in the episode. Um, and so we get this moment also where, you know, Valda is giving some interesting insight into his motives. Um, and he's, he, he knows he's not going to get a ring from, from killing Egwene because she doesn't have one, but he's also interested in, he wants her to to basically confess, you know, to being, to being a channeler, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really intriguing scene. So he attempts to force her to incriminate herself by leveraging Pyrrhon against her. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he places a blade against her neck, um, and tells her to stop him from killing her. And, and she refuses. Um, she denies that she can. And so we yeah. also get this moment where he, he says, you know, she attempts to invoke his own oaths against him, and he says, what makes you think I'm a man who stays true to his oaths? Which I thought was just a chilling line. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's not something that we, it's not shocking in so much as we don't already know this about him, but for him to just blatantly say it, I think is chilling. Yeah, well, it is interesting because he's making all of this effort to prove that he's right, you know, right. that she can channel, and at the same time, he's like, Maybe cluing us in that he breaks the rules and doesn't give a fuck, right. like, or like breaks his own code, kind of thing. He breaks his own know? code, yeah. yeah. Or that, or that, like he has a code that is superior to the code of the white cloaks, maybe. right? Yeah, that like is he has better... two codes. Yeah, <laughs> like he has two codes, and one is superior to the other. Like, like mm-hmm. the white cloak code takes the backseat to his own code, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so that 
Yeah, that was interesting. So so Gwen challenges him and and promises to exact revenge in her next life. And so then like Valda like disinfects the knife with some, with some wine and walks over to Pirin and rips the back of his shirt. He's he starts to like slice um very methodically and slowly slice into Pirin's back. Um which at this point Egwene is struggling. She's she's yelling for him to stop. Pirin starts screaming and this is the first time when we see uh, something happened to Piran. The camera kind of cuts to Piran's face as he's screaming and struggling under this knife, and we see his eyes uh, kind of shift color from brown to gold. What yeah. do you think about this moment? Yeah, it was it was cool. Like I wasn't expecting it. I guess like that or like I just wasn't expecting it right then. Um, yeah, but, I mean Valda is playing like tic tac toe with his back. Like when he took that big ass knife, I was like, oh fuck! Like he's not just like he's like carving him up. So yeah, yeah, it was. It, I thought it was like well done. Um, mm. Interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I think we can say that like this is definitely a departure from the books. Um, so. It was interesting to see how they how they manifested some of the things that happened in the books in the first book, um, and this is this is definitely an interesting and, and new turn. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to see how it plays out. Um, but while he's while he's carving up Pirin, he he delivers this this line, and this is when we really get some insight into his motivations, and we learn that he believes um, that you know humans are meant to struggle. That we're put on this earth, that they're put on the earth to struggle and scrounge for what they what they get in life, what they need in life, and that people who can channel have access to this power that puts them on a godlike status, and that there's the only explanation for that is that it's from the dark one, um, and that is that is the code that that supersedes the white cloak. Mm-hmm. I think the supersedes the white cloak code, um, and that what that's what Valda thinks is his own personal calling um, to the world. You know, yeah, that's what he professes. So, um, so yeah, we get this kind of insight into, uh, into Valda's motivations. And then after this happens, he kind of leaves it on the floor. He says, you know, like, um, so either one thing is going to happen. Someone's going to die and either, you know, uh, you, he says to Egwene, like you channel and I'm going to kill you and let Piran go, or you don't channel and I'm going to kill Piran and let you go. Um, and he kind of leaves that on the floor and, and walks out of the room. And, and before he leaves, he kind of removes Piran's gag from his mouth um so yeah go ahead no i was gonna say like obviously he's pausing the torture but he wants them to talk you know yes yeah yeah exactly um yeah he wants them to talk that's why he removes the gag Mm -hmm. so when we come back to the scene it's it's after dark um they've been there for presumably a fair amount of time alone the two of them alone um, and we see Egwene kind of struggling to embrace the power and summon this knife that Valda was using from off the table. And finally, we get this moment where Pirin tells his deep, dark secret, and he tells Egwene what happened um, during Winter Night, and he shares that burden. And for me, this was, I was like, fuck, finally, like, you're, you're like, talking and opening up about this thing. And I understand that, like, that's a very hard thing, but I felt like uh, Perrin's character was so trapped by that which he is mm-hmm. but i i just felt like we we weren't getting any insight into into him and he couldn't open up because he was so enveloped in this thing so i really was happy that uh that it was happening what do you think about that 
Yeah, I I mean the truth will set you free, <laughs> and yeah. he's finally shared that burden with Egwene so that he can start to heal and move past it. Um, yeah. It makes sense that he feels like he can do it because he probably thinks he's gonna die. I mean, right. he's being right. carved up like Aemon Valda's dinner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and and he obviously is still self-loathing and doesn't think he's the one that deserves to live and like the least he can do is like sacrifice himself to save Egwene in in his yeah. mind you know um and i just wanted to say like a uh you know maddie Egwene is such a fucking badass in all of these scenes. yo it's the first time we see her like stand up and yeah. the way she stands up to valda i was like who is this girl we've not met her like obviously she was the knave's protege we can kind of see it now you yeah know? so good so good um so yeah so we see we see that happen and um Perrin like opens up to to Egwene about what happened and and she reassures him and lets him know that like you know it wasn't it wasn't his fault and right when that happened is kind of when Valda re-enters the scene um and she well just before that happens she kind of suggests she says that, like, you know, like, you're eventually going to realize that this wasn't your fault, even if it takes you your whole t- whole life. And mm-hmm. she's suggesting when she says that, that she plans to channel. She plans to, like, take one mm-hmm. this path that she plans to channel mm-hmm. and, and let Perrin live out his life, you know? Yeah. Um, so Valda comes back and he says, did you come up with a decision? And they kind of don't say anything. And he says, well, you know, silence is a decision. And so he picks up the knife and he goes back over to Perrin. Um, and when that happens... Um, Egwene starts to attempt to channel again and um she kind of like she manifests this like fire this small fireball and she um she hurls it at at Valda and it's it's a really like meager uh thing that kind of like dissipates on his chest um but it proves obviously a that she can channel but it also serves as a distraction because she's not only doing that she's also channeling and she's at the same time, uh, burning the the ropes that are holding Pirin's wrists. So um, she kind of distracts Valda with this fireball and gives him the... Va- <laughs> Sorry, gives- fireball? No, <laughs> it's like, okay, it's like a, yeah, I don't know, what is it, fire puff? <laughs> what was your reaction when you when it happened? Because we've, we've coming up, th- we're coming off the episode where we see Nanave get up to the <laughs> you know out channel location right. and then we see this like fart of like a fire yeah, right. <laughs> i was like ah! <laughs> i mean you know what like i honestly was gonna i just i was i was completely absorbed in the scene so i don't think i really had like a like a i wasn't taken out of the scene by it i was kind of like yeah that makes sense like oh no i wasn't taken yeah. out of the scene and it makes sense yeah. like i think it would have been cheap if all of it, like just everyone from Avon's field is just like oh, i'm so powerful yeah you know? exactly made, yeah, yeah it made sense but like my anxiety was so high that i was like oh, <laughs> no like <laughs> that's you're not like, gonna work yeah you're like wait yeah. a minute that's not enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. but it's it was an interesting moment because like it was. It showed Egwene's like obviously like her determination, but also her resourcefulness and intelligence, in knowing that like she probably couldn't manifest enough to really turn turn the tide there with just the fire, but she could manifest enough to distract him while she did something else that only requires maybe requires even less of the power than she was using to do that to really turn the tide of the situation, right? Um, so it shows it really like shows Egwene's intelligence and resourcefulness there, which was really nice. Um, 
so yeah, so Valda is distracted and um Piran gets up and he he's like enraged. His eyes are like glowing glowing gold. Um he starts growling and Valda is taken taken aback. He's surprised. He you can see him look, look into Piran's eyes and think like what the fuck is going on? What are you, you know? Um he drops the knife. Egwene in that time has freed herself and then she gets up and she stabs Valda in the shoulder. In which case, there's complete frenzied chaos going out. You hear it um, through the mm-hmm. tent. You can hear frenzied chaos going on throughout the camp. Um, there seems to be like growling and howling um, throughout the camp. And uh, the two of them bolt from the tent, but not before Egwene grabs the collection of Aes Sedai rings. Yeah, that was awesome. Yes. Boss so she grabs move. The, yeah, she grabs that collection of rings and they get the fuck out of there. Um, Dude, if stabbing Valda wasn't enough to make him never forget stealing his ring collection, oh, yeah. oh my god. And he was yeah. <laughs> he was already out for blood, so like God knows what he's out yeah. for now. And you know, my warder, our editor Matt, like yelled at the TV screen also because she just you know, she stabs him in the neck, which definitely right. could be fatal. But, but he, he kill him. her to go full <laughs> in the name, which yeah. the name is very good at just like stab, stab, stab. And <laughs> She's it's like you gotta No, we've seen her do it like Oh no, you're right now and I'm like yeah. Egwene, take a note, take a page from the name's book and like yeah. stab, stab, stab. The name is adds like the shanking to the wisdom training, obviously. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is how you stab a man. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so those two like book it out of there. Um, on the way out, um, we see like like just pandemonium happening outside. There's white cloaks being like dragged around, dragged through a tent, like back into a tent. There's growling wolves chasing them around. Um, and one white cloak attempts to, attempts to stop them. This wolf takes them out. And then there's this moment where Pyrrhon and Egwene come face to face with this wolf. Piran says, you know, like, this wolf's not going to hurt us. Egwene's like, how do you know? And then that's what happens. The wolf doesn't hurt him. Mm-hmm. Um, we just see, we see the wolf long enough to see the resemblance of Piran's golden eyes and the wolf's golden eyes, which I thought was really nice. Um, and then the wolf, like, bolts, and those two, those two run away from the, that white cold camp. I kind of wondered if the wolf was, like, guarding the horses for them or something. I was like, right. lone wolf growling and stuff. I don't know. I was like, oh, maybe he was like protect getting those horses for them because they got to get away fast. Yeah, like, yeah, they got to go away fast. Um, totally. It was great when the stupid mustache white cloak was like, you stop. Like, that <laughs> <little> <laughs> fucking wolf just like lunges. Like, yeah, yeah. It was really rewarding. Thanks for that. <laughs> All right. So let's get, let's get, let's look at the, the final moments of this, this episode. So towards like the, I'd say like, Two thirds of the way in, we get a number of kind of like shorter scenes um, back in the tower. Um, the first one is um, the scene with uh, Stepan visiting Nynaeve. He goes, he goes to her, and presumably he is, she has been giving him kind of herbs over the course of their journey to Tarvalin to help with his mood um, after dealing with the loss of Kirna. And he's back, and he's kind of visibly drunk, and he's asking for some more of those herbs for herbs for sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and after he leaves. Um, well, actually, before he leaves, they have this this moment about he's discussing his pain as something, the only thing he has left of Kirna. And Nynaeve has this moment harkening back to the loss of her parents where she reassures him that that pain is never going to go away. and He doesn't have to worry about losing his only thing that he has left of her, right? Which is a really kind of dark but also reassuring uh, moment um, that they have. And Nynaeve then, after he leaves, the door's ajar and she thinks to herself, well, maybe I should go some ex- exploring. And she, um, she goes yeah, what out. What is she and, supposed to do? Is it just like, a <laughs> writing desk in a bathtub? Like, you know. Yeah. 
so she leaves and she's walking around and and eventually um she is encountered by uh leandrin yeah my girl and (laughs) so leandrin like they have this conversation and um there's this moment where we get a little bit of a revelation about Landrin's past. Um, it very heavily insinuates that she was mistreated by by men or a man at least when mm-hmm. she was a young girl as uh, as a result of showing promise um, that was greater than this man or those men's own. Um, and, and I'm not exactly sure we can assume that it was channeling, but it's really not explicitly stated. Um, but we know that she she has some sort of traumatic um, past as it relates to that, and she obviously holds a grudge um, yeah. against men for that. Can I read the quote? Sure. Um, Leandrin says, women hold the one power, but men still control much of this world. And they mm-hmm. are rarely kind to little girls who show a spark of being greater than they are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it definitely is something like from her childhood or like maybe when they discovered she could channel or some other trauma. Um, yeah. So yeah, I thought that was like, it, I mean, it's overt while being subtle, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, it is. And I think it, like, kind of... I, I thought about, like, Rafe before the show even came out and we were, we were doing interviews and whatnot. He was doing Q&As. Like, the show is very much about... He mentioned the show is very much about balance. And this mm-hmm. was... That line kind of harkened back to that for me. Um, when she says, you know, while women wield the one power, men still control a great deal of power. Um, and so it's... It kind of harkened back to that moment about the idea of balance and power power balances mm-hmm. um so that was that was a uh, you're right it was kind of over it was heavy-handed but also like yeah like velvet gloved and, and like giving giving her a backstory giving her like motivation to explain her behavior not just like oh the reds hate men you right know? or right. they want to be the only ones who hold power and it's yeah. it's so much more than that. So it's nice to see all these facets to Leandra, and, and I think people are just really interested in her. So oh, totally. glad they're like they're building her up into a three dimensional character. No, she's she's a fascinating character. Um, as I mentioned last last week, I really I actually really like her character, which I did not expect. And in the books, um, she's not fascinating. Not really, no. Um, so like, yeah, so she suggests then that Nynaeve should explore the grounds of the tower, specifically the library and the gardens, um, now that she's, you know, for the moment out from under Maureen's grasp. And, um, and then we get this moment where she suggests that, (laughs) that she examines the persimmons in the garden, you know, or whatever. Um, and so this, okay, the next thing that happens was like, the weirdest and most disturbing thing of the episode for me. The next, the next scene is like us in Rand and Matt's room. And all of a sudden, like, Loyal bursts in, and he's like, hey, guess who I found? And, like, and Nynaeve yes. is right behind him. And I was like, what the fuck? We missed yeah. a lot of shit here. What the hell happened? That, like, right? I know. That was such a band-aid. Like, I was like, all right, you had, you got the one month thing in there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you got Tom, at some point, told you about an inn that you just, like, find right away in this giant city. Fine. Mm-hmm. You can have those two band-aids. But then this, I was like, what? that was too and much for me. I had to rewind it and like, you know, because it, it happens so fast too. like, yeah, just like, oh, look, we found the garden and like braids are important. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and, and people online were confused, too. And then yeah. someone explained like, oh, Rand was telling him about Gwen earlier. He probably just saw the bra- I'm like, this is a lot. Of it was a lot story for no. this meet cute. Like we didn't see the gardens like it was too much. I no, it didn't make any sense. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you need a different solution. It was too much. That that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Sorry. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that you used your you used your phone a friend or whatever the fuck you call it. Like that was <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. Sorry guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so moving on. Um, so he comes in and and they obviously they have this emotional moment with Nynaeve, um seeing Rand and um, embracing him, and then she sees Matt and and she goes to like help him because he's visibly ill. And he first is like relieved to see her, and then as soon as she touches him, he like snaps at her and says, "Don't touch me," you know. Um, and and then she kind of recedes, and and it goes, and it the scene kind of like settles into Matt and Rand. I'm sorry, Matt. I'm sorry, Rand and Nynaeve having this conversation about Matt. Um, yeah, where he says that he thinks that Matt can channel. Um, Nynaeve expresses that he he's, he's he also expresses that he fears like seeking help from the Aes Sedai because they saw what happened to Loghain mm-hmm. and Nynaeve kind of reassures him that you know what we don't need Aes Sedai like we're going to get the group back together we're going to get the band together and it's going to be okay I'm going to heal Matt <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be fine you know um, what do you think about that, that part I this scene I very much enjoyed and yeah. um, it's it's really great to see. I mean, Nynaeve is just so out of her depth, honestly, at this point. Like, there's yeah. so much happening, and she's, like, doing her best. Um, but, and, of course, she's, like, a protector of her people. I'm, I'm sure it's a relief to find some people from the Two Rivers still alive, and she'll do everything to help Matt. But I enjoy this relationship building between Rand and uh, Nynaeve, and mm-hmm. also the discussion about Egwene being unbreakable, um, which is yes. directly taken, or not directly taken, but adapted from the books um, yes. in a really wonderful way that people, book fans, were very excited about. Um, yeah, that was really yeah. good. I really, I really mm-hmm. like that, and I actually have a lot to say about that scene in the spoiler part of the episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so the next scene we get is um, a very, very quick one between Landrin and Moraine, um, and it starts with this really congenial tone, but very, very quickly shifts into this very tense scene um, where Landrin mentions Nynaeve and calls her a prize um, in in terms of her strength and the power and the fact that she's now in the tower. Um, And, you know, Moraine suggests, or she's like, where's Nynaeve? And and Moraine says she's resting. And Landrin says um, she kind of like tucks Moraine's hair behind her ear in a very um, sensual, sensual uh, gesture and strokes uh, Moraine's face quite suggestively. And um, Moraine kind of endures that very stoically, doesn't really react to it. And Leandrin is forced to kind of press on. And then she suggests that um, even with Moraine pre- protecting her, she's not always going to be able to there, be there to protect Nynaeve and guide her. And uh, Moraine suggests, she picks up on the, the suggestion that Leandrin thinks that um, she'll choose the, the Red Aja. Um, and Moraine says, you know, uh, she basically says she thinks that she might choose the yellow if she's a healer. Um, so they kind of have this this discussion. You get this kind of um, this political intrigue between the the forces within the tower um, and these two powerful women, kind of uh, bumping heads about this new prospect, this new this fresh meat that's in the tower. You know, um, what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, it, it is cool to learn about the other Ajas. One of my friends did text me and said, "Can you tell me what each of the the Aja colors represents?" Um, so I think people are like keen and interested to learn that and expand like the political machinations of the tower. Mm-hmm. But um, you know which part I was most excited about in this scene, which is <laughs> the face stroking and uh, 
James on Twitter said there's no hetero hetero explanation for this. And um, yeah, I like this little nod to history between mm-hmm. Leandrin and Moiraine that uh, obviously Leandrin's trying to use maybe their personal connection a little bit or maybe they're just horny or, or she's just kind of taunting Moiraine a little yeah. bit. So, yeah, I mean, I think there, yeah. was, there was an interesting moment there that I think like, um, I don't know that we necessarily knew that information about them before that's i feel like this is new information about the, their relationship um which i i appreciated the way it was delivered and i thought it was interesting um uh so then after that scene um we get a, a short scene with Stepan and lan where they're in, again in Stepan's chambers and, and Stepan is making this offering to ward off evil against um to ward off evil and ward off the forsaken um which are as you mentioned earlier represented by these kind of small dark carved figurines um arranged around a candle and um uh, and yeah, he's obviously like troubled and, and I just like, it was a very quick scene, but I liked again, like the, the reiteration of like this tender fraternal moment. Um, and that land was, was there for his friend, you know? Um, we also, and also like the introduction of the idea of the forsaken was also very, very fun. Love that. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I can't wait to like learn more about them on screen. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I'm trying to move along here. The next scene here is, is Moraine and Alana. Um, and they're, I think they're in Moraine's room, and we immediately understand that Alana has offered to bond Stepan, um, kind of as a, a quote-unquote replacement bond for what he's lost with Kirina. And um, they kind of they end up discussing like the the actual depth uh, of of Stepan's pain, and and Moraine mentions that there she's heard of like uh, a technique for releasing the bond between Isodai and Warder, and. Um, it suggests that that she feels like she she might have to at some point have to do that um, to maybe protect Lan from Stepan's fate, and I feel like the episode is kind of building up to this kind of this question. You know, um, this is something that's been in her mind as we've seen kind of kind of the first half of this arc um, in the episode, um, and Alana reassures her that um, you know she'll be around for a long time. She doesn't have to worry about that. Um, and then she kind of like pries a little bit into what Moraine's been up to. Like, hey, what what have you been up to these last years since you've been out of the tower? Um, and Moraine in true marine fashion, like deflects, changes the subject. Um, and, uh, and then they kind of get in this, this conversation about, um, the power figureheads of power within the tower. Um, uh, Alana mentions that the Amaranth seat is returning to the tower from Camelin. Um, and she's looking to, for answers. She's looking for someone to answer for what went wrong with the low gain situation. Um, because what happened was not supposed to, it's not, that's not what's supposed to happen when you, when you capture, uh, a man who can channel. Um, so she's she's looking for she's looking for some heads, you know. Um, and so we learn that um, not only is is the Amerlin kind of upset with the situation, everyone who was involved with it, um, not only was was um, it bungled, so to speak, but like an Isidai was was killed in the process. Um, but also we we learned we learned very explicitly that there are three very strong heads of seats of or kind of heads of power in the tower, those being Leandrin, who seems to be gathering some people behind her, the Amerlin, who is the leader of the White Tower, and Alana suggests that Moraine is someone who is powerful enough to kind of um, go against both of them. What do you think about that scene? Yeah, I mean, first off, I I love just the setting for the scene, that, like, dorm-style, like, uh, two friends catching up, but obviously exchanging really important information. Um, And obviously... You know, Alana makes a comment about how Moraine's quarters are so bare because she's not in the tower ever, and she just wants her to engage. Like, Moraine is 
powerful. Um, obviously, she's very strong in the one power, and people respect her, but she's not, you know, she's been absent from this game of tower politics. Mm-hmm. I also think it's, like, interesting, like, why would Moraine take any blame for what happened for Loghain? Like, she wasn't even sent on that mission. Like, that's the red and the green's jobs. Like, yeah. Leandrin should, her head should be on the block. Um but she says, you know, you've made two powerful enemies. So I think yeah. they're definitely teeing up the Amberlynn seats return and it'll it'll be really exciting. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to see this next episode when she gets back. Um, so then we, we the, the next scene is another kind of short scene. We see Stepan kind of pouring some tea for Lan and they're having this moment kind of joking. It's a really nice moment where they're joking about um, Stepan, like potentially taking Alana's offer and and joining the Alana Maxim Ivan team. Um, and there's an ease with which they discuss that dynamic and the, the sexuality inherent to that dynamic. And that is really refreshing to see, um, especially between two presumably straight men in this world, you know, like, mm-hmm. again, it's just a nice moment. Um, and the conversation then shifts to Lan and Nynaeve and, and Stepan's kind of like, hey, what's up with this this hot chick that you picked up, you know, like <laughs> on, the, on the, in this village, you know, and yeah. Lan's kind of like, Lan's like kind of being very reticent about discussing yeah. it or even what like... What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what chick? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, we see kind of, again, I think this is uh, hammering home Lan's kind of being between two worlds and being between like the, the the path that he's chosen and this new possibility that has presented itself, you know? Um, and so all of this, all of this whole episode seems to have co- occurred basically in the course of one day. Um, and we get, um, I just want a moment, I'm going to take a moment to acknowledge that like, we get this really cool, again, shot sweeping shot of like Tar Valen and the dragon mount, but at night. And like, that was actually the money shot for me. That was gorgeous. Like the night shot was mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Um, so we get this shot, and then and then we get Dawn rising on uh, on Tarvalin, and and Lan wakes up, and he seems to have been drugged. He's holding this empty teacup. He Stepan's gone. He goes over to the table and sees the herbs, and then he sees the dagger gone from the mantle, and he knows he already knows what's happened. And he's he books it out of the room. He's running through the halls, and he's looking for Stepan, and he finally finds him um, kneeling at the foot at, of one of those statues in the kind of the water hall. Um, and Stepan has presumably taken his own life with one of these daggers from his mantelpiece. Um, and, uh, did you have any thoughts about that, that scene? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was, a interesting and like a good choice that he basically committed like seppuku, like the yeah. Japanese, like disembowelment or like belly cutting. Um, cause I know they researched a lot of different rituals and robert jordan also like borrowed a lot from different cultures that he was inspired by you know so it seems like um an authentic way for him to commit suicide in this world like in front of the warder statue mm-hmm. um i thought they did a good job of like land waking up dazed and he sees like the tea and you put it all together like why step and went to the nave and um yeah i thought it was powerful like ran, uh lan is running yeah and i he knows it's ho- like he knows what he's gonna find he already knows you know? yeah he yeah. already knows totally yes. um so this kind of leads into the final the final scene of the the episode um and uh we see all of these people kind of gather around Stepan's body Stepan's again dressed in white he's laying on this bed um it's his body his hands are 
crossed over his chest. Um, we see all these people dressed in similar similar kind of ceremonial lights, um, and and Land is is standing near the bed. Um, we also see in the crowd um, Moraine and Nynaeve and Alana, and uh, we hear this man who is who is doing this this throat singing, um, and and uh, and there's another man who who says to Lan, relieve uh, relieve us of our grief, and at that point, I think it's understood that Lan is is kind of being a, a proxy for everyone present, and he is the person who is going to take on this this grief and this emotional uh, the the emotional pain, the intense emotional pain of having lost a brother. Um, and so Lan kneels kneels down by the bed. Um, the, the man who has spoken those words, he starts kind of pounding himself in the chest over his heart with his right hand and this self-flagellation begins and the rest of the people in the group begin to take it up and 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 Lan eventually begins to take it up and he you see this this agonizing look on his face this expression of of grief as he begins to cry and and beat himself and and we look at Moraine and and we can see Moraine is the only person in the crowd who's expressing emotion aside from Nynaeve um who is kind of out an outsider in this situation um and and we I think we can understand that it's because of the war the warder bond that Moraine is feeling this absolute grief that that Lan is is embodying for everyone, but she can still feel it, and they have this moment in the midst of this larger moment um, as they all experience this intense grief for having lost um, this warder. Yeah, I, this was so incredible. I mean, it was like one of my favorite things in the whole season. Yeah. Um, and I, I think people were not thrilled with me that in the beginning of this season I was like not fully on board with Lan or I was just like proceeding cautiously because my headcanon from the book was a, a bit different and people were like he was exactly how I pictured him in the book and it's like okay cool but like I just Daniel Henney is breathing his own life into this character and like mm -hmm. brings his own nuance to it and um I feel like his performance in this and the way he expressed the grief and like, contorted his face it was just so real and yeah uh, it was yeah, very powerful it was it was really moving and and again rosamund pike like i don't know if they helped her with teardrops or whatever but just <laughs> staring and the waterworks flowing down is like and you know it's interesting because obviously like nanave is an important player but in the scene like she's small and like in in comparison like she's she's watching land but obviously like she can also see that connection between moraine and him you know um and how powerful that is but absolutely yeah and i just thought it was interesting you know in the extras rafe said we wanted to start the episode and end it with fun a funeral and like the beginning funeral was uh, more like a female expression, like with the music and things that they did. And then the throat singer in this was like so cool. And he was like, what would like the like a more masculine ritual be? Um, I thought that was like very interesting. Yeah, it was. That was that was a really interesting concept. And the book ending of that was really well done, I thought. Mm -hmm. So that concludes the uh, spoiler free segment of this episode. Um, <laughs> but tune in and... Uh, We'll have uh, some spoilers for you talking about this this episode.
All right. Next up, we're going to be talking about uh, nonstop spoilers, talking about the book and the TV show. And we are joined by Tigrain of Twitter of Time. Say hi, Tigrain. Hi. How are you guys? Sadly, the Mahal had to leave the tower this week. He's flying to Atlanta, not for Jordan Khan, sadly, <laughs> but he'll be thinking of all our sweet memories while he's in while he's in Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> I hope he so, gets to the liquor store on time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully, he has better luck than we did at Jordan Khan. Um, so, Tigrain, tell us, what is the latest on episode five, according to Twitter of Time? Have you seen any uh, good reactions this week? Yeah, so I think, like, every episode has created a different reaction, which is really interesting. And this episode is the first time I, I think I've seen just straight theorizing and debating about what they're doing and what some of the things we saw mean. I think we're now like two episodes into an arc that isn't present in the books. So people are just kind of going crazy trying to guess at what's going on at this point, even book readers, which was really exciting because I think the first mm -hmm. like three episodes, we pretty much, it was pretty, you know, on par with the book. So a lot of debates came up um, with this one. And that was really exciting. A lot of theorizing is starting um, around the directions they're going to take. So that was different this time. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like most of it was sort of like positive excitement that they don't quite know how things are going to play out and how these small changes could turn into kind of like bigger changes? <laughs> yeah, I definitely think it's positive. I think like, well, at least, you know, I curate my timeline, but the majority of people <laughs> I see seem to think that it's great because it's like, we haven't really gotten to theorize since the books came out like that much. There's still some unanswered questions with the books, but I think for a lot of people, it feels like old times. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone seemed really excited about it, about having questions and just generally feeling like it's something fresh and new. And I saw a few people be like, I don't even care anymore if they change things. I'm just so happy that it's something new to talk about with, with the Wheel of Time. Yeah. And I, I don't know how you feel, but I do feel like even though the step-by-step -step plot is is different, the essence of Eye of the World is, and the thread of it is definitely there. Like we are hitting the major milestones, but in a different way, obviously with Berlon and Camelon, Cam Berlon and Camelon being eliminated. Yeah, yeah. Camelon <laughs> shouldn't have smoked some two rivers to back before this. Um, but with them eliminated, it makes sense that everything would happen in Tarvalon and that we get there sooner because it's a really interesting place to be. Mm -hmm. And obviously, they don't have time or money to build every city in the books in one season. Mm -hmm. um, but we did get our first look at Tarvalon. So what did you think of it as, as a book fan? I mean, I thought it was beautiful. Um, I, you know, um, I think like the stone masonry which is so nerdy to say um, <laughs> isn't quite quite there yet but um we're deep in spoilers now right yeah we're deep 
Okay. So I was kind of just checking out like the windows and the tower and I was like, man, they really are not ready for an aerial attack. Oh my God. (laughs) Right where my mind went. I was just like, oh my God, when does it shine? Wow. You're such an IEL, like scouting the fortifications. (laughs) I was just like, oh my God, those wide windows and those balconies, they make really dramatic shots, but you know, we're going to see what are the, oh God, what are those things called? Not the serenit, but the other things. Um, land on them and I was just like oh my god so that'll be really good the Tarakan yeah yeah and the Rockin yeah um that'll be awesome yeah I mean as far as they know like nothing can fly they don't even think I said I could fly like in the age of legends so why would they be worried about about it so yeah that far up (laughs) I know well so when you say stone masonry obviously I I, I think all book fans are playing close attention because if you're not a book fan, you're just like, okay, fantasy city mm-hmm. looks very fantastical. Look at the intricate kind of carvings and these like knockout windows. Um, I'll, I'll reserve my opinion first, but like, did you have any response to like the actual aesthetic um, of it? So I, I mean, I liked it from like just a fantasy fan. I do think, um, you know, obviously in the book, books it's an ogier built city so there's like buildings that look like waves and right (laughs) i know trees um so you know i i get it like that would have been an insane (laughs) thing to do budget wise yeah i feel like so maybe this will be controversial but aside from like the sort of like lattice work like Mm -hmm. like the stone that looked like lace almost Mm -hmm. just the walls themselves and the ground i felt like it looked a little cheaper like too precise like the the brick and the actual stones themselves and i felt like it should have like more texture feel like thousands of years old and not like a set so sometimes i was i it might be a little controversial but i expected it to feel a little like more worn in rocky or yeah I don't know yeah more like hand placed I don't know I would agree with you I was actually waiting to hear what you had to say about it because there was something a little like off to me like especially in like the street like when they're walking through the street and like you've got all the background people it just didn't feel and like you saying it like feels like a set kind of felt right like it did feel like a little bit too much on set, a little bit too much costumey. Um, so yeah. I don't know how to fix that, though. I'm literally the worst person to even give this critique because I have no idea how to, you know, make it a constructive one and say what <laughs> you do instead. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, that that definitely was was there for me, especially in the outside part of Tarvalon. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know we were both reading uh, Animation Magazine today, had an article about the epic fantasy VFX in The Wheel of Time, which was really cool. But I did notice there was a quote from Rafe talking about how it was very intentional that this was not like desaturated and didn't have that like grim, colder tone of other fantasy. Um, And so he specifically said not desaturated. And it's been my constant criticism that it's just a little too pristine and a little too like colorful. And I, I feel like they could split the difference, you know, like it just needs to feel more lived in. So it doesn't feel like a set, like it needs to be less perfect. So it doesn't feel like you can tell there's professional lighting kind of thing. You know what I mean? 
Well, and I also feel like Lord of the Rings really switched around. Like there were some scenes in Lord of the Rings and some sets in Lord of the Rings that were extremely colorful. And then there were ones that were more like grayscale, depending on the movie. Right. And I thought Lord of the Rings did a fantastic job, even on the colorful sets. So I don't really think like, I think, I don't know. I'm not sure like the, like, and again, I'm not an expert, but like, it's like, you can have people in colorful outfits and have a more colorful Mm -hmm. vibe to the show, but still make something feel lived in and worn in and like all of that. And I know with Lord of the Rings, they built like a million models. Like they had like littler models (laughs) in and like, so, I mean, there was a lot that went into making that look realistic, but um, I know it's possible. So (laughs) yeah, totally. (laughs) Okay. So why don't we move inside the tower a little further and talk about the plot? Um, Obviously a lot happened. And the main thing that is not in the books is this whole uh, water plot line, obviously. Uh, what did you think of this? The fact that they, I saw mixed opinions that there was so much time spent on a character who's not even a player in the books. Um, yeah, what did you think? So, I mean, I I see both sides. I I think it was really, I think probably the thinking behind it was they really need to drill home early on the importance of the water bond and everything that goes into it and the effects of it. So I think it was a calculated decision to have that happen in season one um I get the frustration though because we've got eight hours and they're spending (laughs) so much time on this guy who's we're never gonna see again no um, it was was a powerful goodbye I think yeah it, it it was and it was like very emotional it it um i think was an opportunity to add more culture to the tower because the tower in the books is like very cold and like mm-hmm. here put your novice dress on you're one of us now but they're like, <laughs> mean to each other all the time um so i could see how it it i could see how they felt they had to create like more of like you know, a feeling of, of bondedness between the eyes and eyes and stuff like that. So like, I get it. I do. But I also understand the frustration of like, yes, we got some really rushed transitions in this episode. The pacing for me still feels like it's a little bit of a struggle just because I think they are short on time. So that, mm-hmm. that was hard to reconcile. Like. Yeah. They, they are struggling with time. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously like they just only have eight hours to do it. I wish even the episodes could be a little longer, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I, I admire the writers and have like the utmost respect for them because yeah. they keep delivering like really powerful storytelling, but mm-hmm. you can tell times yeah. where they're not set up for success and they just have to solve for it, you know? Um, I feel like you can tell that they're just like cutting things out, which normally I can't tell in a show. Mm -hmm. And that's where I struggle a little bit. And I your fault because I think this is like a massive undertaking and I'm super positive about what they're doing. But it's also like, yes, if they had 10 episodes like Rafe asked for, (laughs) we would be better. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, Speaking of that, and I'm I'm curious if it's the same, but Colin and I felt like the moment where Nanave shows up at the inn where Ran and Matt are staying, and Loyal's like, "Look who I found in the garden." That felt to me like a, a jarring moment of like, "Wait, what? How did this happen? We didn't even see her go looking for them, or we didn't see the gardens." Like, did did that feel like a jump to you? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I felt like something was edited out there that 
then they kind of just were like, oh yeah, she, like, by the way, I found her. And it's like, yeah. no, there's something happened. I know there's something on the editing room floor with that. And I, it's just so frustrating. I know. But I was like, what if there's not something on the editing floor? And they just thought in script form, we, okay, we don't have the time or money to do a garden or film the scene. So yeah, um, who knows? yeah, yeah, who knows? Okay, back to the tower because I want to talk to you about something. Everyone's been really focused on how this like step in plot line highlights the Warder Aes Sedai relationship, but I also think it does something that the books do not, which is show us a lot more of like the Warder culture, their fraternal bonds together, and I think it's going to be important later with, with the splitting of the tower because um, that's mm. something that we don't. Yes. doesn't get that much weight in the books you know it's like mm-hmm. mentioned that they kill i i don't ha- is his name hammer hammer hammer, hammer. <laughs> yeah, hammer. um yeah and like the warders turning on each other like that is wild and so i think that this is gonna be important later that we're spending some time with them which the books don't you know it's like yeah. the eyes that i come first and most of it is like i said i politics from from more from their point of view Except for Lan, you know. Yeah. No, that is so smart. I did not think of that at all. <laughs> it really makes me appreciate <laughs> that scene more now. I will shut up about Stefan. Ha- I mean, ha- you're ha- thinking ahead to the Shanchad, but you just, you skipped the splitting of the, the schism. You skipped the schism. But yeah, I mean, and how that could affect them. Like, can you imagine oh, the... Oh my God, you're right. Oh no. Oh my God. <laughs> This is so emotional. And then imagine Min walking through the tower just seeing like bloody symbols above all the warders. She's like, what the fuck is going to happen? Yeah, you're right. And I mean, they even had, you know, the seeds on the eyes to die side of the split too with some of the conversations. So like that makes total sense. Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is why I can't criticize the show. Rafe and the writers are way smarter than me. So (laughs) (laughs) they got to be thinking ahead. But since we're already talking about the schism, might as well talk about Leandrin and how there is a theory that they could be combining Elida's character with Leandrin. What do you think? I mean, I hope not because <laughs> I just feel like Leandrin, I mean, obviously she doesn't play as strong of a role later on, but she kind of does. Like she's she's the one that they're chasing around. Um, so for Nynaeve and, and Elaine, it's kind of a big thing. And then Elida obviously is iconic and we cannot get Mm -hmm. rid of her. Um, So I'm really hoping that's not the case. I see why people think it is, but I'm wondering if the situation is just that Leandrin obviously being black Aja is causing, you know, divisions as they are, are want to do. And um, she creates kind of the groundwork for what happens later on with Elena. That's what I'm hoping. And and maybe yeah. it's more directly credited to the Black Aja. Mm-hmm. It was mentioned in the books, but um, it wasn't overemphasized. So maybe that'll be a big, a big thing. Yeah. I So I kept thinking about how Rafe said what he loves about the Wheel of Time is that it's about balance. It's mm-hmm. not about good versus evil. And so like my first thought was, I'm glad they're building out Leandrin's character in the way that they are and that she's like very three dimensional. 
Uh, they taught, they allude to some sort of trauma that she might have had in her childhood. She doesn't just hate men. She's mm-hmm. not just evil and black Aja, um, mm-hmm. which made me think, well, then maybe she could be Elida. Because I was like, well, they wouldn't put someone just black Aja in because then it's like she's yeah. just evil and it's a Gwen versus like an evil person. But Leandrin's character is developed in a way that it could be really interesting. Non-book fans are like really high on her I know. <laughs> and they don't really know they don't even know about the black aja yet which is like I, that's the one thing i have to be so careful not to say um yeah but um at the same time swan is in camelin and mm-hmm. i feel like camelin has to have an eye Sedai advisor so i i still am in the camp of i think elida exists and I think Leandrin will need to leave the tower and have her own story. I hope. I think my rebuttal to that <laughs> would be so with the Black Aja, I think the Black Aja might be humanized a little bit because with D- Dana, we saw her give her backstory and we didn't know that she was like a dark friend at the time, but obviously we do now. Um, but she kind of talked about growing up in that town and how, uh, she, something about, she came from dirt and whatever, um, that whole metaphor she gave to Matt. And I feel like they did try to humanize her and show why someone would turn to the shadow instead of like the books. We just get these people that are like, they're evil. They're really bad. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I could see, I think your argument is almost like an argument for her to still be black Aja and to not be Elida in a way. Mm-hmm. Cause like, yeah, she does have this backstory that we're getting kind of alluded to and she's not necessarily a bad person, but like what drives someone to turn to the shadow, you know? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you a hundred and I love that they're giving us those backstories, like helping us to understand their motivations and which I'm going to hop over to the white clan, the white cloak camp then, because there's also speculation like is Eamon Falda combined with Keratin? Could he be a dark friend? Because he said, what, what makes you believe like I follow olds or I'm bound by olds or, you know, I'll keep them. Um, but I feel like that would kind of do the opposite. So it might be interesting if they're humanizing the people who are mm-hmm. Black Aja, but then there's still this person who supposedly walks in the light, but is just evil and he's not a dark friend. Yeah. But he also could be a dark friend. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. a lot. It's really interesting. I don't know. He's, he's, I, I feel like though he's got a story too in a weird way. I mean, he's definitely like a psychopath, but I mean, you can tell from some of the things he said that in his mind, it makes sense. So <laughs> no, he's totally justified it, but he's justified mm-hmm. it by saying the one power has to come from the shadow. So right. then how could he be a dark friend? Yeah. Like that doesn't, just, yeah. Like I wonder if he's just like, maybe thinks he's above the law because he's a questioner kind of situation versus mm-hmm. like, I'm not held by oaths because of because of being he serves a higher purpose he's like he's like a religious zealot who thinks he's absolutely justified in his yeah lack lack of mercy and he just but he just thinks people are guilty before you know which that is very loyal to the books the questioners just assume you're a dark friend 
Well, and that was funny because people were asking on Twitter, like, how does he know whether she's channeling or not? And I'm like, maybe he's just bluffing. Like, maybe that's how convinced he is that, like, every woman is a potential mm-hmm. witch. And he just bluffs and he doesn't believe they can't, you know? Yeah. And it's just that convincing that they're like, all right, it'll channel. He clearly knows. <laughs> I know. Well, to be honest, I think that he was very suspicious of Moraine and Lan. Mm-hmm. But he was with Bornhold, mm-hmm. who is more of a steady hand. So I think he didn't want to, like, try anything necessarily yeah. uh politically but then he also goes his own path and decides to head towards Tarvalin uh to shake things up yeah I but with that. yeah I think there was like some sort of calming influence in that moment but now he's away from it mm-hmm. going to great lengths to get evidence to prove what he believes and he was right <laughs> yeah um Oh, okay. So while we're talking about this, tell me what you thought about Egwene's channeling for the first time. Um, Because I know you had a little bit of a theory, maybe, or heard rumblings of a theory. Oh, um, I don't, I don't know which theory you're talking about, but why her flame did it wasn't so great. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's some debate over that, which, I mean, is basically like, it, it did it just dissipate on its own? Because obviously she's a new, inexperienced channeler. But then there's the idea that some people have that they're convinced about that Valda has something akin or, or you know, the same thing as the Foxhead medallion. Because that is very close to what is described as happening in the books to Matt when he wears the medallion of it just kind of like... Mm-hmm. Dissipating. Yeah. yeah. So, and everyone, it's so weird because everyone I talk to seems very sure of their own read of that scene. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all different. Like some people are like, no, it just dissipated. Others are like, he has a Turan grill or he has something, he's protected. So I don't know. Um, I was very confused by it, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There's no way to rule it out. My gut says she was just weak and distracting him. I mean, because think of it, she would, I don't know if she would have to divide her flows to to do what she did with Perrin. Um, But I also thought it would have been kind of unfair if she just started like immediately being very powerful in the way Mm -hmm. Neneve was in the previous episode. Uh, I thought that would have been like harder to believe. So um, it could be a Tarangriel, but I'm going to vote no. So we'll see yeah. what happens. Um, I also just felt like, and I mean, this is my thing as a book reader is like, like you said, dividing the flows and doing something that precise is like burning his, his like bonds off without burning him or whatever. Mm-hmm. I felt like was so advanced for, <laughs> for yeah. channeling compared to the books. And like, so for me, there was a bit of like, like I get it like there's this idea already introduced in the tv show of like people like channeling under duress but mm-hmm. um I wish it had been like maybe not a big burst like 90s but a little less controlled and a little less precise like even if Perrin had had like burns on his arm afterwards and you saw mm-hmm. that I think it would have been yeah a little more realistic but that's also literally only if you've read the books are you gonna know that that is more complicated than a yeah. big like, burst so 
But it could be also like that is a different sign of how great her strength is. It's like her focus. And she is one later to be very talented at dividing flows and also Mm -hmm. strong with fire and earth, which women typically aren't. So could be like a bit of foreshadowing. You're talking around on everything today. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Aries do. We convince you that we're right. Perfect. I love (laughs) it. Agree to agree. It's a good cause. It's a good cause. (laughs) Um, So, okay. Once they escape Valda and Egwene goes stabby stabby and he falls down and they run outside. I, I did hear some criticisms of the wolf scene being kind of uh, goofy or like not as well directed. I know you've say, said that the wolves look like dogs. <laughs> so what did you, what did you think of the wolf distraction getaway scene? I mean, they do. They're a little small. I, I don't know. I, like I, I have the, you know, privilege of knowing through a friend, someone who has a wolf sanctuary. So I've like seen mm-hmm. wolves in person and they're like pretty big and they sound very distinct and, Obviously, it's a TV show. I'm I'm keeping it, you know, my expectations low. They don't need wolves running around set like giant wolves. But um, yeah, I mean, it was a little strange. Like, I think, again, just the the timing is killing them on some of these reveals because it was just fast. And it and I think it was like. You know, I I think if they had kept it actually truer to how they escaped in the books, which obviously you don't have mm-hmm. Nynaeve and, and Lannan play here, but even just like child by her, like untying parent, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think in that way, maybe the scene would have been slightly like a little bit more believable, um, especially because like we've missed like kind of this like build up like with Elias and like him learning about yeah. the wolves. So it still just feels a little bit like, Oh my God, werewolf man. <laughs> what <laughs> <You know>? happened? <laughs> so um, I didn't, I didn't hate it. It, it wasn't my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. It did scare me a little bit though. I could understand why Valda yeah. was holy. Like, like some people were like, I don't really understand why that scared Valda. And I was like, dude, his eyes just went gold. It was pretty, pretty frightening yeah yeah i know uh my water our editor matt had some issues with the editing of like that whole sequence because mm-hmm. he's an editor and he was like i think it could have been done like in a way that's more powerful um just sequencing yeah. wise you just made me think and maybe this would have been tackier but like if there was more time would have been fucking rad for uh elias to like show up <laughs> with the wolves and i actually think you know for for like slow scenes where we first meet the wolves maybe it makes sense to like use real trained wolves but for like action sequences I think like more CG could have been better because it happens really fast. Right. And so like big fast wolves, I I know they did do like CG dire wolves in Game of Thrones and it can look good, but it's probably expensive, I guess more expensive than real life baby wolves. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. (laughs) Wolves would be like 
<laughs> the hardest to deal with. Yeah, I would have loved that. Would have been a great introduction for Elias. Yeah, wow. just yes. this weird wolf man bursts on the scene. Like, what the fuck with a pack of wolves? And, and then he's like, like, he's like, come with me. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Oh my gosh, why are we not writing this? <laughs> Honestly, this is. I, I know you weren't here for the non-spoiler section of the show, but like my my biggest feedback was I did feel like I would have liked an episode in between this um where like you know we spent a lot of time with the Aes Sedai maybe it could have focused more on like White Cloaks and and Perrin and Egwene and the Tinkers and everything because mm-hmm. um if this had happened not right in front of Tar we might have got had time for Elias and him to like finish the journey with them and they wouldn't all be like arriving on the same day which seems silly right and like <laughs> not to you know to our discussion we we all had a discussion earlier today um I also think it's so weird that we totally missed any any chance, like any conversation around what Nynaeve did. Like, yeah, except for Moraine, the scene with Moraine. Yeah, yeah, like which is which the scene with Moraine was like kind of there, but kind of not. Like, it still feels like like no one's acknowledging her channeling in a weird way. Like, you can <laughs> totally know. But like they're like, oh no, she's totally normal. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I will say this: like, if they've been on the road for a month, it's not like it just happened yesterday, and she's she's been processing this. I'm sure the other eyes and I have been like prodding her. We yeah. would have been doing those exercises like we get in the book to to start training her. Mm-hmm. But Moraine acts like it happens yesterday, and she can protect them from all the eyes and I. Maybe it's because so many people died in the attack. It's just like it's just like a lately entry a lot of left and they're like too busy um yeah yeah. I think if we had gotten an on the road episode where because it doesn't feel it felt like such a powerful end scene to episode four and it didn't feel like we got any of the like you know conclusion from it you know and and I just think Yes, 100%. I'm with you. There should have been an episode in between that was like on them on the road and reacting to all of that. And then Perrin <laughs> meeting Elias with the Tinkers. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, it, it's obvious the, the restrictions the writers are under, which sucks because yeah. you never want it to be obvious. But it's like, okay, we have to get all this stuff done in eight episodes. And not to compare it to Game of Thrones, but I I will, but you did have episodes like they had to get from point A to point B. And so you can just spend time with the characters, like get, giving it room to breathe and giving yeah. like Matt and Rand time to like stew on the road and see Matt fall into madness. But instead right. it's like we get a barn scene and then we get him in bed and it's like, it's really fast, you know? Do you not to put you on the spot while we're recording? Uh-huh. But do you do you know how many episodes they got per season for Game of Thrones? I you know I was gonna look it up today. I'll I'll look on my HBO app <laughs> while we talk because I'm honestly so curious. I feel like it's like the time is just the one thing holding them back. We know mm-hmm. Rafe wanted ten episodes. How do we get Jeff Bezos on board? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. They had ten. Had, well, that's the first season. Let me oh, go okay. later and make sure. Yeah, yeah, they had ten every season. Okay, see, that's the magic number. <laughs> yeah, and if you think about how much is in the Wheel of Time, but you know, I, some episodes could be a little boring. Like, and that's not a bad thing. You yeah. know, I mean, 
it's time to invest and in, and lay more of that groundwork. But if you just pretend there was a bridge to that gap, then um, there was there were things that I definitely loved about this episode. Um, mm-hmm. Mostly the funeral scenes, <laughs> like those were I I loved it. I don't know what did you think. I thought those were great. I mean, like I said, I think it added a lot more culture and impact. Um, It was really interesting on the behind the scenes to see where culturally he pulled that from for both the ice and ice side of things and the order side of things. Um, So yeah, I thought it was really powerful and really emotional. And that's like kind of the interesting thing is that I think every episode has had a different feeling and this one definitely had this really like sad feeling <laughs> and also yeah. like, kind of an alarming feeling because of the Gwen storyline. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I just, I agree with you. I think the, in, and, and I love this series. Don't get me wrong. This is critiquing with love. I just think there's like whiplash sometimes of like, Oh, we just mm-hmm. had the, the like a raging sun scene. And then the next thing it's like a month later. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. No, I, I agree. One person uh, I don't think Colin and I talked about, and I haven't seen that much chatter about, but uh, Aram in this episode, I one on one hand, I was like, oh, thank God, I don't think the White Cloaks took him. But mm. I'm kind of surprised, honestly, because he was helping Egwene and Perrin escape and like those horses just like run them down. But I did think it was really brave of Aram to, to help them. And you also see that Perrin has kind of bonded with him. So like that has happened in the past month. So I, I'm excited to see Aram come back later. Like, I think they're doing a good job of setting up his character. What do you think? Yeah. I thought the Tuathons like peaceful resistance was like, yes, just so beautiful and then um i think with aram i think this might be like one of the things that pushes him over Mm -hmm. the edge giving up the way of the leaf like him being like helpless in that situation and not being able to do anything like and then he's going to be in that situation again later on i just think sets up his his arc really well yeah seeing his grandma get like beat down by a bunch (laughs) of mustached like scary fade haircut white cloaks yeah and they're basically so rude about it too they're like what are you gonna do you know like yeah and we know he's i mean i get the sense anyway that he's holding a candle for Egwene, and we could have gotten more of that on the road in episode 4.5 that we wrote (laughs) in our minds (laughs) (laughs) that will be our episode forever yeah Um, oh my gosh i would even I agree. I I think if we could have seen more of him, like us, because I think with the book Aram, there's such a transition between who he is as a tinker. And then he's like this, like mm-hmm. not happy person. Yeah. <laughs> he leaves and it's such a distinct change that, yeah, it would have been great to have that set up more. Do you think they'll change his arc? I don't think so. He'll turn on Perrin. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. I you know what? It. He would have made a better warder than Gowan. Can we change? If I'm going to change Aram's plot, I'm, I'm sending him to a going side. That would be oh so cute. What if they get rid of Gowan and put some of his stuff with Galad and then they have Aram be the, the end warder? <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. That would be so funny. I love that. <laughs> I mean, Elaine doesn't need two brothers. No, she doesn't. <laughs> 
She's good. All right. What did, what did we miss? Anything else I didn't touch on theory wise? Um, I think, uh, I think one thing is just like the general politics. This isn't really a theory, but like the politics started to come out. Like people are like, why is Swan in Caitlin? What is she doing there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I love that we're starting to see some of that like political yeah. stuff going on. And I hope we get an answer because obviously it's too early for Elaine. So she's not like mm-hmm. picking up Elaine from Caitlin. Yeah. So it's like, what is she doing there? <laughs> so oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I don't know. It is interesting. I just thought of something too, like um Obviously, we see Pat on Fane uh, for, oh, yeah. you know, the first time since since uh, Beltine. And, you know, in the books, we see him in Berlon. And obviously, like, a Fade is nearby or he can, like, say, like, yeah, he's here at the inn and, like, call the Fade down like the dark mm-hmm. friend he is. But I don't think a Fade would go into Tarvalon. I mean, that seems insane. But... I don't know. They also said like a, a fade would never go into like the borderland, like Faldara, but they do. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, I don't know. I wonder if we get like a fade in the city next episode or if I don't know, like, I just, I don't know what Pat on Fane's going to do. I don't know what his next move is now. <laughs> um, I don't know. I could honestly see the eyes to die being like really sure that no shadow spawn will come in their city and then it totally happening. Cause I just feel like that's such a, like, yeah. they're just so convinced, you know, and I just, I could totally see that happening. I think that'd be actually pretty cool yeah. to have something like that happen. Didn't, I'm probably totally misremembering, but didn't they have um, the golem go into Tarvalon at one point? Yeah, yeah, and, the Chase Matt. Yeah. Yeah. But... So- it's true it's true but a golem's different like golems golems are are they're not afraid of anything because the power can't hurt them so it's not like you're so creepy i can't wait for that oh my god (laughs) yeah it it always reminded me so when i was a small child my grandma used to make me watch a lot of horror and also that we would watch the x-files together and there's this one episode where this guy can like stretch himself and like go through yeah. events and stuff and as a child it changed me like even to this day like if I'm taking a, a bath like I try not to look at like the vent too long because I'm just like gonna see like eyes or something moving behind it and I feel like a golem is like that like they could just sneak in fucking anywhere they don't have any bones scary that is so funny because I watched that exact episode as a child <laughs> as well and it too has haunted me yeah. <laughs> And it is the exact same thing I always think of. And how he like, had that weird like nest they found. Oh my god, him. yes. Yes, I think of that all the time when I think of the cold. <laughs> if you're so listening, funny. Rafe, if you can just do it as good as X-Files or better, we'll be happy. That's exactly. Like, that was so creepy. It scarred me for life. Like, yeah, oh my god. It, it really did. Now. <laughs> <laughs> me too can you imagine if you just look closely and then you like saw an eye blinker so oh my god it's like an eye don't twist me i'm gonna do that at like a halloween party imagine like put like some eyes behind freak someone oh, out that's a good idea that would yeah. be scary get someone <laughs> okay so we'll see we'll see what happens with pat on fade that's mm-hmm. it's exciting and we'll see what happens with swan returning Oh, okay. Wait, I wanted to ask if 
we think there's going to be some like lesbian drama because uh, there was innuendo that Leandrin and Moraine have a past, but in the books, Suan and Moraine were pillow friends. But what if they both are true in the show? What if <laughs> there's like weird? Oh, <laughs> the thruple that didn't make it. <laughs> yes. <gasps> Oh my god, it's so interesting. But what if Swan? It's like it's funny because Alana says, like, you know, you have powerful enemies now, like referring to Leandrin and Swan, but like they're both Moraine's ex-girlfriends. So like, yeah, you do have enemy. Like I'm convinced that's gonna happen. Twitter of time is convinced that's gonna happen as well. Like the creepy touch Leandrin gave Moraine and all of that just it's being set up and I'm so interested to find out that backstory. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's like maybe they were close as like novices. Yeah. And then maybe as accepted, Leander and started to go on this like red Aja trend and, and they, you know, had a falling out or something. I have no idea. I think it's going to be great. I'm so here for, for that, that yeah. uh, lesbian love triangle. Yeah. Speaking of novices, we see our first novices. What did you think? Um, I'm intrigued. They have like those armbands. Or was that? It, I was like, like, how do you get that on? Who uh, you must have to have pillow friends because like I can't do that myself. Right? I can, yeah, I can barely put a bracelet on myself to be honest. I'm like, I can't do the class. Never mind like a ballerina arm. Me too. I thought it was cool. I mean, I didn't catch the hem of the dress. So I don't know if that is still a thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I thought they looked cool. Um, I was again, I'm just, it's like all these eyes to die passing like naive in the hallway. And I'm like, how are you not just like staring at her? I know. Um, That's another that is another big debate is whether the they can actually sense the channeling as or uh, the potential channel as well as they can in the books right now, because they're like, I just don't understand why it's not being acknowledged. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they should also be thanking her. They should mm-hmm. be like, hey, thanks. I'm not dead now. <laughs> like, yeah, like, what about that? Like, mm-hmm. what the hell? <laughs> yeah. And Leandra doesn't think she's going to choose the yellow. But in, in fairness, I could understand why Leandrin would get like some red vibes from Nanave because she doesn't seem like a multi-water kind of girl and no. she's really fierce and stubborn and mistrusting and yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean Leandrin probably, you know, has some plan in her head. I mean, it seems like the Red Aja recruits very aggressively <laughs> compared to the others because we don't really see Alana like come come learn about my life. <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like the Red Aja is really on it. And, you know, maybe it's also like potentially recruitment for another Aja. Mm, the Black Aja. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you imagine? Well, I I have a feeling like Nanave and Leandrin will definitely be battling later on. Yeah. That'll be fun to watch. It's definitely setting that up. I also wonder, too, like, I wonder if there's some sort of like barrier to entry to like actually being becoming a novice in the tower versus the books because the fact that like Sherryum hasn't popped up and been like <laughs> oh hey, I here's your novice robes and then like you know the fact her mentor got turned away from the tower um and I and I wonder if maybe that's why the other Aes Sedai are staying away from her until they know whether she 
passes or goes through whatever this barrier to entry is. Mm. Whereas maybe Landrin feels more confident and is trying to get in there early to recruit her. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I wonder if Leandrin's waiting for like Swan to come back to like talk about mm-hmm. it or something. Like maybe she's being strategic. Yeah. But she doesn't. If no one knows, then she still has an advantage. But if the whole mm-hmm. tower knows, then they're all going to be coming for Nanave. But, yes. and I do feel like Alana, you know, maybe as Maureen's friend is just sitting on the information and is like, you know, I got other stuff to worry about right now. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. But if they don't come, like, directly for Nanae next episode, something's amiss in the sh- tower. Like, they're, like, what are they doing? Yeah. Especially, like, didn't I see riding into the tower they were still a surviving yellow sister? How are they not all over what she did? Yeah. <laughs> well, they are going to have to explain to Swan next episode, which yeah, I'm just good. so excited for. Maybe we'll get a flashback to them, to the, you know, post- post naive raging sun thing and we'll get to see some of that context we missed who knows mm, that's that's true maybe they well i doubt they have any so far there's been no time for any flashbacks so but we'll, we'll see that makes me sad other than the I cold know. opens that's it i know star trek discovery does this thing called uh short treks and they're like these like mini short film episodes and sometimes they're related to the show and sometimes they're just like different stories in the universe but Mm -hmm. i almost feel like if wheel of time can't do 10 episodes maybe they could do like little shorts like things that got cut for time or like little vignettes or just like bonus i mean there's lots of bonus behind the scenes content but like bonus scenes or something like i would love that yeah give me anything (laughs) they were i saw someone on twitter uh asking for like a show a showrunner's cut and to Amazon and saying we would pay a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got director's cut of, of movies. Why not? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I know. I did watch like a four hour uncut water world <laughs> this summer. This, this summer. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> to be fair, it took me two nights. I was like, I can't watch this much water world. And I forgot it. Some of it has not aged well, and some of it's fine. <laughs> oh no, not Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, okay. Any tweets that you'd like to share before we wrap up? Yes. So um, there's one from at Adorna Zero. And she says, the Wheel of Time show is doing a great job of making me like characters I didn't care for in the books. Leandrin, Alana, Stepin, how many cool characters can this poor heart of mine take? That is a very common theme that they are making people actually like people we're not supposed to like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is a problem for people. I don't know if that's happening for you or not. I mean, it's, I, I love this problem. Um, and it's also, even though you're supposed to like Nanave, I didn't love her always in the books. And definitely she's like a shining star. So even people you're supposed to like in the books, but maybe didn't. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I hope the non-Egwene book fans like TV Egwene as well. But Leandrin's like my favorite. And obviously yeah. most of my tweets were just about how horny I was after this episode. So between Alana and Leandrin, like. That's, 
That's also a very common response. Yes. <laughs> um, which segues nicely into this tweet by James L. Thor. Um, he goes, Leandrin made me bisexual and I can't believe I have to come out to my mom again. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I thought that was hilarious. Um, and then the other tweet, let me pull it up. But there was a really good one about... Um, so there was like, to give some context, there were some people saying that Lan would never be that emotional and he wouldn't cry Mm -hmm. and all of that good stuff. Um, and I, there was some really good responses to that around kind of people being happy that this idea of masculinity of not having emotion and all of that stuff is being challenged. Um, so I really appreciated that. And there was a tweet, but I think I lost track of it from on call where he basically talked about um, being a man who is very emotional, how much it meant to him to see that portrayal and how he's been bullied for that before in his life. And he was just basically like, it means a lot to me to see that as a masculine trait for these like manly men. Warders. Yeah. Um, and so that, I think that was really great. And I think that's something that, People can complain about all they want, like, oh, Lan would never show emotion. But, like, within that context, like, Lan is ultimately a very ceremonial person. Like, all of his mm-hmm. little things he says, like, Taishar, Manetherin, come from Malkiri ceremonies. And I think it totally made sense for him to participate in that. And I love that that resonated with people um, that you can still be a manly warder and have feelings. <laughs> yeah. No, so I think that was really nice. it's a really important point. Like expressing emotion is, is not masculine or feminine and it's definitely not weakness. Like it takes mm-hmm. a strong person to allow that, um, to take on that grieving role. <laughs> yeah. um, and I thought I was so impressed by Daniel Henney's performance and, and the way he did it, it really blew mm-hmm. me away. And yeah. I did mention that, you know, I had, struggled a little bit like in the beginning to know like if how this land sat with me and it was different to me from the books um which some people were like this is exactly how I imagined him in the books but I think um the ways I was diverging on that is that are the more cartoonish qualities and the Mm -hmm. more like caricaturish qualities that he's just like a stone of a man and like his face is chipped away like a side of rock or something um and you know this land is just a a real person and Mm -hmm. um but does embody all like like you said that like ceremonial side um Mm -hmm. and i just thought like he really showed his like talent this episode it was really great to watch yeah and they had that nice little shout out to him on tv line as the best performance of the week which was so nice oh um and it was cool, too, because on the BTS, you know, I think he mentioned that he wasn't sure how to do the scene at first because mm-hmm. he he did struggle with the fact that Lan is so stoic in the books. And, like, what is he going to do? Just be, like, blank face the whole, yeah. you know, what are we going to get out of this eight seasons? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. just Lan standing there doing nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I did appreciate that. And um, clearly it, it touched some people, you know, and I think it was such a great, a great scene and just a different emotion on the show that we haven't seen yet. So it was really, yeah. it was really good. 
I think what helps it be believable too is like it's not it's not just about his role in the ceremony. It's not just about his friend. Like there is so much going on with, I mean, he knows sort of that the last battle is imminent. He's known Mm -hmm. that he's like worried about Moraine. Mm -hmm. He's gotten a name now, like who's like challenging like things inside him that he didn't think would ever be challenged. And, you know, it's a lot for any person. And they've been traced chased by like Trollocs and Merdral yeah. He, like, lost all the Aemon Fielders. Like, they put that blame squarely <laughs> on his shoulders. So I think, like, he digs deep. And then what he comes up with, obviously, is, like, this guttural, like, thing. And um, like you said, like, it's the way he did it made sense for him, like, as an actor and for the character. And it's it's nothing like when Loghain is uh, gentled and you right. see him kind of, like, whimpering or crying. It's It's its own thing, so... Yeah, I love Nynaeve's reaction, too. I mean, it just is so, like, it was the right reaction. Like, she's kind of looking around for, like, permission, mm-hmm. you know, to be upset. And she, you can tell how shocked she is. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. Just the whole way it was done and, and the reactions of everyone in the room to it and how – I just think it was so respectfully and so great, great, mm-hmm. greatly executed that, um, you know, his grieving kind of gave – that permission for her to grieve a little bit and um you know it was just really well done yeah and she's definitely like if she wasn't hot for him before <laughs> after this grieving scene oh yeah she, <laughs> she's like, she, in touch with his emotions I yeah she's like i'll be in my quarters for the rest of the night please knock before <laughs> entering like <laughs> she's like we can heal from this together she's like i think i saw an interesting shape to Rangriel in my <laughs> you know robert jordan loves uh comforting grieving through that so oh my god okay wait i I don't believe I said this bit with Colin and I apologize if I am repeating myself, but just speaking of Robert Jordan made me think when they're doing the procession with Loghain and there's like these women in the front and they kind of have this like white undergarment under their like dress or whatever. I was like, all right, guys, like you can have some bosom, like not every neckline has to be up to your chin. Like I get it. You're, you're departing from the books, but like I could handle some titties. Like I'm 33 watching a fantasy series. Like, please just get a little bit. Like it's awaking all of my bisexuality with even necklines up to your chin, but like just occasionally. And it's a city. It's a city. There's gotta be some women with like a lower neckline. And I'm sure we will get some bosom for you. Did you see the statue of Grey Doll? That was a big bosom. Yeah. <laughs> the, the foreshadowing of the bosom I'll get in like season five. Thanks for the reassurance to Grey and I'll just, just stick around. Okay. <laughs> Do I have to go to a hell you- to get a, you know... <laughs> Grace is gonna make you work for it. There yeah, you go. That's what, what he does. <laughs> um, all right, I'll stick around for the bosom season five. <laughs> cool. Um, any closing thoughts? Do we cover it all? I think so. I will just say for the record, I do really like loyal. <laughs> oh my god, yes. That's where my vote goes. <laughs> you like loyal. Yeah, I love Loyal. I think he's cute. He was trending on Twitter, no? 
Yeah, well, the Wheel of Time account like was like, everybody get him trending and was tagging all these Twitter timers. So yeah, everybody started just hashtagging him on everything. Um, I think he got up to number eight, which is awesome. Oh. Yeah. I mean, so what the reasons we didn't record uh, the night it, the show came out, which it comes out on Thursdays for me in Los Angeles, um, is I had tickets to a comedy show to see Nick Kroll, and there were like five guys probably in their late 20s, early 30s. And uh, my friend Annalie was like, they're talking about the Wheel of Time. And I just like turned around and was like, hi, <laughs> talking hi. about the Wheel of Time. <laughs> like, I have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally. I was like, <laughs> but it is, it is just, I don't know. I mean, it's new for me to be like out in the world and hear other people talking about it. And, you know, and they were, you know, one guy was starting to read the books, which is exciting. Just all the new book fans that are going to come out of this. Um, yeah, it was good. Yeah. But welcome, Loyal. Looking forward to see where where you fit into the rest of the journey this season. Yeah. Um, I want to see him scared. He was so, like, confident. I can't wait to see him, like, in the ways. I want to see what flustered Loyal looks like. <laughs> I don't ever want to see Loyal scared. I love like, uh, is it Hamed? Hamad. Yeah. Yeah. I love his, his performance so much. Like what a talented actor, like his voice to, and to get across expression with like prosthetics on your face. Yeah. I was like, how are you doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Like he just, and his voice and everything just, he's, he's doing a great job. So a shout out to him. If he ever listens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, you are going to see him scared in the ways. <laughs> no, not my loyal. <laughs> oh, no, well, welcome, loyal. And I'm going to continue calling him loyal. I'm sorry, Rafe, and you're loyal, but it's not happening for me. <laughs> I will probably do the same because that sounds really weird to me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We're signing off from Ranland for episode five. Tune in next week where we'll give our spoiler-free and spoiler-filled review of Wheel of Time season one, episode six. Have a good night, and thanks for joining Tigrade.